not the devil. Your practice. Are you so desperate to fight criminals that you lock yourself in to take them on one at a time? What chance does Gotham have when the good people do nothing? People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy, and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne. Where were the other drugs going? Uh, 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 I swear to God. Swear to me! I don't care if it's rival gangs, guardian angels, or the goddamn Salvation Army. Get them off the street. Bruce, this is Harvey Dent. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. I'm a man of my word. <laughs> Those mob fools want you gone so they can get back to the way things were. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things. Forever. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. You'll know that I'm telling the truth. I pulled him out. He was babbling about an underground army. A masked man called Bane. Why are you here? Maybe it's time we all stop trying to outsmart the truth and let it have its day. Goodbye, Alfred. Let's not stand on ceremony here, Mr. Wayne. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I'm doing today is a bit different from the comics, movies, and TV shows I usually talk about. Actually, I guess not in that it relates to movies, but basically what I'm going to be doing today is I'm going to be talking about the first in a series of movies, and before I get too far into that, um, what I want to do Instead of introduce my subject first, I actually want to introduce my my uh, guest host today, and the reason for that is because, well, it'll all it'll all make sense in, in in just a few moments. But without further ado, I welcome the co-host and co-founder of, geez, podcast almost too numerous to mention. Let's see, there's Dorkness to Light, there's ah hell with it. Uh, the, he's the host and co uh, the host and founder of Quarterbin Podcast and the co-host and co-founder of Too Many Podcasts to Mention. I welcome Mr. and Professor Alan. How are you, sir? Great to be back, Trennis. Always appreciate the invitations. Well, and it's always fun to have you. And I got to tell you, the reason that I wanted you specifically for today's show, like you really were my first choice. Um, today's subject is Batman Begins, and the reason I wanted you for this show is this isn't a, I guess, a reference to anyone else or any other podcast or, or anything else. Uh, basically, this is, I guess, more as like a sort of internal thing for me personally. I've been in the past, shall we say, a little hard on on the, the Chris Nolan Batman films. And so what I wanted to do today was just talk about these movies in a very fair, very even-handed, very calm, very reasonable way, you know? So no, well, a minimum of F-words, and this isn't an excuse to 
you know, gripe and complain and throw tantrums. This is supposed to just be mature discussion. And, you know, let's face it, when it comes to just kind of calm, level-headed analysis, well, you're a very good choice, put it that way. So, Is this like the time that Stella said she liked my show because my voice was soothing? Like, you could put it on and it would put you to sleep? I mean, I'm not sure what the, what you just said was a compliment. Oh, well, it was no, intended just... to be a compliment. Come on, <laughs> give me something to work with. So. <laughs> now, <clears throat> um, that's basically the plan. Now, as to how well that's going to turn out in actual practice, well, who the hell knows? The plan but... is minimum ranting. Exactly that. And I guess to kind of start at the beginning, I was working at a computer company uh, here in town uh, in the Heights. And and I guess you could say this was really like my first real office job that I'd ever had up to then. And it was, like I say, it's for this computer company in the Heights. And so a fair amount of my time actually had to be spent for you know, legitimate work purposes had to be spent kind of tooling around on the internet, right? And so one day, oddly enough, I want to say it was February of 2003, I found a news item that said the guy who wrote and directed Memento is going to direct the new Batman movie. This guy's name obviously is Christopher Nolan, right? Now, I knew Nolan from Memento, and I had loved Memento, and at least to start with, I thought, you can't miss. There's no way this is not going to be awesome, you know? And that was kind of, I guess, to start with, that was the baggage that I was bringing in. Now, do you remember where you were and what you were doing when news broke that Nolan was going to be taking over and rebooting the franchise? Not in particular, but Memento is absolutely one of my favorite movies. And I, I loved it at the time, and I know it. I, I and it's probably one of those things where you look back on it now, what, almost fifteen years later. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you know the gimmick, when you know, you know some of the aspects to it, it, it it might it might lose a little bit. But I I, I think it still holds up. Uh, uh, me- memento that is. Yeah. And and really enjoyed it, and I thought. It was an interesting choice. I still think it's an it's an interesting choice, and you know, to some extent, I love this era of superhero movies, of comic book movies, hmm. that really started from this time, maybe a little bit before, and I really like the concept of finding young, somewhat visionary, if if we can use sort of a. a highfalutin you know, uh, movie critic word. Go right ahead. And giving them movies. Sometimes it doesn't work. Ang Lee's Hulk. Yes. But sometimes it really does work. And uh, I would put uh, – I would and, and, and sometimes the fit is perfect. Kenneth Branagh on the first Thor movie. Yes. Perfect. Perfect choice. Uh, to some extent, I would say, you know, the, the, the Captain America. I mean they, they've made some really good – Really good choices. Again, there have been some hits that, and there have been some misses. But I like the idea that we're not just going to get an action movie director. We're going to get someone who's done some something different, something, no offense, maybe a little deeper or a little more resonant on a different level. 
than just making these action movie franchises, trying to do something a little different. And, and, th- and that starts at the top. That's, that starts with the director. Right. Well, and the thing about this that sort of, at least at the time, worked for me was this idea of not just a, I, I, I guess more of a, a, a director that has a, a specific genre, as you say, that is not action. But Christopher Nolan is a little bit of an auteur. And I thought, well, the idea of an auteur handling the franchise, at least for one movie, because that's all anybody knew about at the time. Again, I thought that had a lot of disco potential to it because you can't really overlook, I guess, a little bit of the detective aspect of Memento. I mean, that's not really what Memento is. It's not really a detective story, but there are detective elements, I guess, to it. And... I guess the the grit of the characters and a little bit of the darkness of the story, it didn't take a whole lot of imagination to see that there is a little bit of a transition being made from that type of a story to Batman, but it's not a huge transition, you know? it's You can draw some fairly straight lines, I think, between Leonard Shelby and Bruce Wayne. Different outcomes, different methods, and arguably different handicaps but very similar motivations, at least on some level. And I thought that this was going to be, well, to start with, actually, I thought it was going to be something different than what it was ultimately going to become. And then as we went through all of this, I mean, you know, news sort of trickled in from there as, you know, relating to shooting locations, casting decisions, costume designs, and things like that. And then we get to opening day, and the movie comes out, and now it has to kind of sink or swim in the market of public opinion. Now, I guess to start with, did did you actually see this movie in theaters? And if so, what were your immediate thoughts about it? I probably did. I, I, I do not see a ton of movies in the theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, I probably did. I saw – I, I, I snuck out of work to see the Tim Burton 89 Batman movie. Oh boy. So there's, so, so there's sort of a, 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 a tradition of making sure I, I see these Batman films. So I probably did, uh, the actual specific recollection I have was that later in the year, uh, in the, the holiday season, mm-hmm. the family went on a cruise, hmm. the whole, the whole extended family, eight or 10 or 12 of us. And I remember one night that this movie was on the, you know, in on-ship entertainment system. Mm -hmm. And so me and my wife and Emily and her cousins sort of all piled into someone's cabin and and, and watched it there as well. But pretty sure I'd seen it in the theater. Hmm. Well, awesome. This was really one, and at that point, what was becoming a growing number of Batman movies that I had seen on opening day. And I didn't exactly set out to do it that way. It just kind of happened. You know, um, seeing, you know, the first Tim Burton Batman movie on opening day was a conscious decision on my part. I mean, you know, the anticipation for that movie, you know, I I had there was no there was no way I was not seeing this on on opening day. Not happen. Right. And then, yes, even Batman and Robin saw that on opening day. Oddly enough, the only Batman movie that I never saw opening day or at midnight even. You remember midnight movies? Um, <laughs> it was actually uh, The mean, Dark Knight Rises. So that you mean those movies that start at 7 o'clock on Thursday? 
yeah. those, those midnight movies. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I want to ask you about that. Did you ever? I mean, this may be a little bit outside your wheelhouse, but did you ever go to like midnight premieres of uh, of movies? No, no. Okay. Well, it's just that you know, it, because of the fact that now it's all the day before, and you can see it at seven thirty. And you know what? Actually, a lot of th- movie theaters these days have moved to assigned seats. Yes. So there's almost no point in lining up anymore. I mean, it's kind of ruined something that, it, like in retrospect, I hadn't realized how much I really enjoyed doing. But I, 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 I think between that and the you know Harry Potter book releases, mm-hmm. but I think there, which I, I did not attend uh, either. But I think you know those are great. That that standing around waiting in line, waiting in in anticipation with like-minded people. Yeah. Who want the same thing? I think there's a real, you know, social uh, connection there that that can be made. I I certainly understand that impulse, and I can I I can certainly see the value of that. Well, you know, a friend of mine he actually calls it the Dragon Con effect, where mm-hmm. you know it's basically just a bunch of you know fans who are hanging around, you know, shooting the bull with each other, and you know, there's a sense in which you know when I go to a con, I don't necessarily want to hang around and shoot the bull with people. I want to get bargains on stuff and you know whatever but as you say i mean there is a, a kind of a social value to all of this and it's just that tends to get lost you know with these uh i don't know these early showings and you know i mean i've been to midnight premieres for a ton of different movies and one of my favorites of all things was actually revenge of the sith because you had all of these people who were running around and they were wearing costumes and stuff. And, right. you know, that's not completely unheard of by any means, especially at a Star Wars premiere. That's not unheard of. What kind of made this unique was that people – some people actually went a little bit to the next level with it and they brought, you know, like props, one of which was a, a working R2-D2 model. And, you know, it, you, you would just poke your head out of line and you would see in sort of like the courtyard, you know, R2-D2. Uh, D2 doing these sort of like parlor tricks and stuff like that. And, you know, kids were playing with R2 and just having the time of their life. And, you know, I mean, if I could have gone to a midnight premiere of a Star Wars movie as a kid and then got to, you know, play with R2, D2 and all that stuff. I mean, that's a memory that would last the rest of my life, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And you just don't really get that as much anymore. And I'm not trying to sound like an old fart, although I know I do. It's just I kind of miss that is what I'm saying. But. One of the things I noticed was that Batman Begins, everything about Batman Begins. I mean, I think if if there's one word to sum up just about every single aspect of this movie, the obvious things and maybe even the not so obvious things, it would be subdued. And <clears throat> that would certainly include the, I guess, the, the midnight premiere that I went to. People were interested to see it. You know, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's not like any anyone who was there had to be dragged, kicking and screaming into going. But there's a there was this there was a level of anticipation that oddly enough just didn't exist for this movie. And there are some pretty obvious reasons as to why. I mean, I really enjoy Batman and Robin these days. It took a hell of a long time for me to get yes. there, and most other people haven't even gotten there <laughs> and probably won't ever sure, get there. Sure. So I guess to begin with, what were your initial like reactions? to? And then after this, we can actually get into like more like the blood and guts of the story. I just want to set this kind of set the stage as much as I can before we start diving into, I guess, the 
the minutia. Like, what were your initial thoughts? Uh, ov- overall, I enjoyed it, uh, and 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 still do, and think it's pretty good. Think it's a good origin. Um, I think you know, subdued is 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 an interesting word. It's certainly, you know, you when, when you compare Nolan to Burton, you do get less obvious visual flares. Mm-hmm. You know that that is in essence what Burton specializes in. Yes. And you know Nolan has a a different you know his his mode of being an an auteur is is different from Burton's. So you sort of need to set those set those aside and sort of let the movie be what it's going to be. But I think um, I do think there was some cautious optimism going into the movie as opposed to I know I'm going to love this. Yes. You know, which you may get at, at The Force Awakens or that anticipation of other of, of other big movies or maybe even by the time we got The Dark Knight. I imagine the anticipation uh, for that one was was quite different, you know, for. Oh, for, yes. <laughs> yeah, for, a, you know, for for a variety of reasons, you know, but the the bar of what this guy was going to do with with this character had not been set yet. The expectations had not been set. And you know, the expectations, as, as you alluded to, had been hit pretty hard you know, with the, the last few attempts to do movies in the Bat world. Yes. One of the things that honestly kind of caught my attention about this movie when news, like real news, started trickling in about it was the, was the choice of villains. Now, I don't want to be so crass as to say that a Batman movie is only as interesting as its villains. But at the same time, you can't really ignore that as a as as an element of the movie either. And the fact is it was a kind of courageous decision in retrospect that Chris Nolan chose to use two villains that at least the way he used them, they don't really have a very strong visual presence on the screen. I mean, say whatever you want about the previous franchise, but when the Joker or the Mr. F- or, or, or Mr. Freeze or the Riddler or whoever, when they're on the screen, they pretty you much it. own it. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, and you, you, you know, they're on stage and there's a very strong visual component to all of those things. And, Less so here, simply because of the business suit effect that, you know, Ra's al Ghul isn't really wearing a business suit for most of the movie, but even he puts on a business suit, at least at one point. And they don't have, you know, crazy over the top costumes or makeup or anything like that. Literally, the closest that anybody comes is when Jonathan Crane, because you can't really say Scarecrow as such, but Jonathan Crane put on a mask, a Scarecrow mask a few times, but really... That's about it, and that is even in and and even some of the big action sequences are Batman fighting a lot of identically clad ninja. Correct. Who are in essence the same color scheme as he is. Yeah, and that actually kind of makes for a little bit of schizophrenic editing, but I guess we'll come to that when we come to that. (laughs) But the this was not a comic book brought to life, at least from a visual standpoint. Now, 
We we're in an era right now of comic book filmmaking where pretty much anything that's on the page you can pretty much put on screen. Batman Begins was of a different time. And the whether it's true or untrue, the prejudice that a lot of people, especially those in Hollywood, had was that comics had to be adapted and comics had to be sort of reshapen, one might say, in order to fit into a, a cinematic paradigm. Do you believe that that approach benefits the material when it comes to changing so much of the visual identity of Rachel Ghoul and uh, the Scarecrow, or, or, or is this even something to to even bother discussing? In- you know, I, you know, you have two options there, yeah. and 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 I, I'm I'm personally a fan of the Watchmen movie, for example. Oh yeah, which is a lot of the panels on screen. The comic book panels, comic book uh, scenes, angles, color palettes recreated on screen. Yes. But I, I don't need that. Um, I I enjoyed that. It was that wasn't that that was an interesting choice. That is not the only choice. I I think that these are different media, and right. you can tell a comic book story in many different ways. On film, mm. so I'm 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 open to all of that, and and you know I'm again I I come with a pretty laid back attitude, which which uh, may be why when you talk about a controversial subject, you want me, yeah, pretty <laughs> to much to put your audience to sleep. No, um, you know I, but I don't have a narrow view of any of these characters, Superman or Batman or Spider Man. Mm. You know, there's there's not a checklist that I have <clears throat> for this to be my Batman. Mm-hmm. It's not my Batman. Um, you know, it's not that uh, if, if he, well, he doesn't have the bat emblem in a yellow circle. Therefore I refuse to read that comic or watch that movie or read that novel or whatever it is. You know, I, I try to take all of those efforts on their own terms. All right. <clears throat> well, so, the- so, so, to answer the actual question, I think <laughs> uh, you know the the idea of telling a story based on comic book characters and to some extent some comic book materials and plot lines and and and, and images and put them in a different setting or or tell that story in, in a different way visually and 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 in in other terms is is fine with me. All right. Well, as a, as a concept, I guess as to the as to the movie. I don't know this to be true, but looking at the decisions that Nolan made in this film, do you think it would be fair to say that his operating philosophy was if Burton or or, or Schumacher did this, I have to do it a different way? I have to go – no, I don't want to say I have to do the opposite because what does that even mean? But I have to do something decidedly, clearly – not Burton, not Schumacher. Yeah, and, and I, I wonder – yes, and I wonder if to some extent or wondered how much of that would be his decision. You know, we think of Chris Nolan as a award-winning director and all of that, and, and certainly uh, Memento had done well. Yes, it had. Uh, 
critically, but this was by far the biggest thing he had ever tackled in terms of studio and, and, and budget and, and those things. So I do wonder to what extent um, you know, that was a, a directive to some extent. Uh, you know how much guidance he had, even on those. You know, you know, we're bringing you in to restart this and to do something different with it. Well, and or, I think, or, or, you know, or 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 how much, you know, sort of he pitched an idea of doing something different, and that's what they bought. <laughs> you know, sort of, you know, who who started that conversation? You know, whose original idea was it to do something different? Well, or and just I, or. Or just as an auteur filmmaker, you you say to yourself, they recently did similar a similar movie to this. I need to do mine differently. And you know, I, I think that's kind of inescapable. But mm-hmm, sure. you know the you know we were talking about how everything with this movie is kind of subdued. That includes its box office. You know, this movie was undeniably successful, so I don't want to I don't want to give the wrong impression there. It made money in in the United States and it made money internationally. So no question about that. But, you know, he did have a mountain to climb in terms of reestablishing Batman as a sort of a credible enterprise. And it may be hard to think of think of such a time now. But there was a time between 1997 and I would say about the probably about the time news came down the pipeline that, hey, Chris Nolan's going to be directing a Batman movie in 2003. There was a point there of about six years where the idea of making a Batman movie was a joke. And people would – I remember people joking about that on things like Ain't It Cool News and, and kind of you know places like that where people make with the snark all the and, time. And, and, and remember, it's not you know, in, the, in the exact same universe – but Catwoman was 2004. Catwoman was the year before. Yeah. And that was a disaster on every conceivable level. So to some extent, at least from the studio's perspective, I think he was having to rescue not just from the end of the prior you know, four Batman movies, the, the, the last couple of those, the, the Schumacher films. He was also to some extent the pressure – Explicit or implicit was to make up for Catwoman as well. You know, that's one of those things, one of those elements of Batman Begins his release that, you know, I think history may ultimately forget about. I certainly I mean, it's like on the one hand, I was intellectually aware of it. But wow, I mean, I hadn't re- I guess I hadn't really taken that into full account. But you're absolutely right. There's it, it's it's there's kind of no denying it really in many ways. But um, uh, you you. You mentioned the both the the box office, uh, re, you know, uh, uh, response, and it was it was certainly a hit. It ended up being the, it, it, it ended up being in the top ten box office movies for that year. Yes, you know, cr- it, uh, solely domestic, uh, U.S. box office, just cracked uh, two hundred million, which is way under half what each of the next two movies would do. You know, the, in other words, the Dark Knight almost tripled that. Yes. Or, or well over doubled that. And then even Dark Knight Rises uh, uh, doubled what Batman Begins did. Um, and, and interestingly, and also in terms of, 
of reception mm. of of the three Nolan films, this is the lowest in terms of uh, 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 critics as well. In terms <clears throat> of the of at least the the Rotten Tomatoes sort of uh, aggregate Correct. of critics. Yeah, <clears throat> and that's kind of funny to think about because you know. As history sort of wears on, what I find is that this is the one that I, that ironically enough, arguably holds up the best of the three. Now I don't want to get highest among in- uh, highest among viewers still. Oh uh, well, it, it it fights it out with with Dark Knight in terms of again. I'm just looking at the Rotten Tomatoes score ah. in, in in terms of users. Well, um, so it's it's the lowest among critics and one of the highest among uh, um, among viewers. So I, th- I, th- I do think it's one of those things. Where I I do think it does it it does hold up, and to some extent we look at. I mean, we may be getting to this at some point, but the Dark Knight Rises was a disappointment. Yeah, in in many levels, on in 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 many ways. So I think you know, looking back, you know, the the first that to some extent I, th- I think that perhaps we we look back more fondly on both of the two that 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 came before that. Right. And I, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, I think I've got a fair amount to say about all of these movies. I've got a lot to say about the dark Knight rises, but all in good time. Um, my, but still I, but again, to circle back around, I enjoyed it at the time and I still do. Well, I came out of the movie theater. If there was one word that kind of summed up my, my mood at the time, it was meh. I didn't love it. And I didn't really hate it 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 was just sort of there but uh, i guess as far as the box office is concerned one of this is just a little pet theory that i've had for a while now my honest opinion about this is warner brothers would have been on the fence about making a sequel you know maybe they'll do it maybe they won't right except something happened that i don't think anybody necessarily expected and that is to say, Batman Begins as a film did 200 some odd million in the United States. That's domestic box office, right? It then turned around and did another 200 or so million, maybe a little bit less, right. in DVD sales. Mm, okay. And the studio had not originally planned that because I think the usual method uh, or the usual metric is whatever your box office is, your DVD sales will usually do something like a little bit more than half of that because there's an entire group of people who are going to see the movie, enjoy it, don't give a damn about the DVD. And then the other half, they'll maybe they will enjoy it. And they, you know, it, it, it just comes down to, uh, a, a, at the time, what was a pretty simple formula. Now, obviously, we live in a different market these days, but at the time, the idea went that if your movie does, say, $200 million at the box office, you can expect between 90 and $110 million on DVD sales. And that did not happen with Batman Begins. They got another $200 million in DVD sales. And what that told people at Warner Brothers is that word of mouth on this movie, which they already knew was amazing – it was even better than they first thought because this movie had – it not only had legs at the box office. I mean this – it just sort of went on and on and on 
it it wasn't setting records every single weekend, but it was making a strong showing for itself every weekend right. at the box office. When you start getting at a home video release and for it to have that kind of performance, told Warner Brothers and especially the marketing wonks that people missed this character. People wanted Batman back. And now they had him. And whereas I think I, I truly believe a sequel, this idea of making the Dark Knight, the best you could have said is that, you know, toss a coin. Maybe they'll do it. Maybe they won't. The right. DVD sales showed them that there is a bigger market here than they ever thought was possible. That is. And I, I forget where I read this, but, you know, I did read it somewhere on the Internet that said that's what. That's what forced the studio's hand and saying, no, we're, we're going to do an, another one of these and let's just see how it plays out. And then, of course, the box office for The Dark Knight Rises is a completely different – or sorry, The Dark Knight is a completely different episode. We're not getting into that here. Yeah. But there was fi- obviously a lot going on. Yeah. With that. So, but to finally get into the story yeah. itself, basically what we're dealing with here is a story that is – it's equal part – Chris Nolan improvising along with – I don't want to say adapting. I don't want to say that you know Chris Nolan is bringing, say, The Man Who Falls or, or Batman Year One or The Long Halloween. He's not adapting those stories per se. But he is doing what I think is a very effective technique of comic book adaptation in – Using those things as a clear and undeniable influence, not a literal adaptation, but an influence in terms of the type of story that he's telling. It's his story as filtered through perhaps values, sensibilities, philosophies, even sometimes scenes from those from those stories. I mean, by the time he's getting this together, you've got. 60 to 65 years of potential content, right? Just, just in, in, in comic books. Mm-hmm. And so, and quite different content from the hard boiled thirties and forties, the silly fifties, the detective, the you know, true detective, the early seventies. And we think of some of our favorite, our favorite, uh, uh, writers and, 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 and artists on Batman. Well, who did, you know, who, 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 who all did very, very different types of things. So when you're adapting a character like this, the, the nice thing is you have so many types of stories to, to pick from. And to some extent, that, that, that could also be uh, hampering uh, to someone, almost overwhelmed with literally thousands of potential stories to you know, pick and choose from to make something in your pastiche that sort of is consistent and it it adheres to your vision and makes some sense. Right. Well, and I, I don't know this to be true because it's not like I've got Chris Nolan on speed dial or anything like that. But what I've always kind of assumed is that there was a basic idea of a story that he wanted to tell, which I think the, the franchise of this movie is actually pretty straightforward. (laughs) Batman, begins i mean you right, you really right. can't put a a better a better description on in terms of i because because if you think about it i mean that really is the perfect title for this movie right i mean right. what I, there's 
there's the story that this thing tells about how Batman begins, but there's also a little bit of there's a little bit of a marketing message to that to the audience that right. this is not related to the things that you've seen before. What you're seeing here right. is something that's new. And what I think Chris Nolan wanted to do was basically tell the story of how Batman begins. And David Goyer just happened to know the the I guess the screenwriter for this movie or the co-writer. He was aware of comics that would facilitate that kind of exactly. story. That, that that that's a good way to put it, I think. Yeah. And so basically this movie literally from the start, literally right from the start is different from anything that's come before because the the four Batman movies which preceded this they usually started off with it may have taken a little while to get there, but there was some kind of an action sequence starring Batman at the beginning of each film. Right. Just to kind of give you a little bit of a Batman fix to start with before actually getting into the blood and guts of the story. And then, you know, whatever direction the movie goes is the direction the movie goes. This goes in a very different direction, literally from page one, and right. that it starts off with a flashback scene. And we see Bruce Wayne as a child. And these are things that we'd gotten kind of hints at and glimpses of in previous movies. But this idea of doing any kind of an extended scene, especially including dialogue revolving around Bruce Wayne as a child, it's not that it had never been done before. It just had never been done before in live action feature film. And I guess the balls of starting off your big action fest comic book movie that way. Right. That, I mean, you talk about, that's a ballsy opening, you know, because that is so different from what people had, have come to expect from Batman movies on the one hand. But on the other hand, I think that this ultimately, I think Nolan knew this was going to be a safe decision because that was nevertheless the kind of the tone and the tenor that comic book movies had taken in recent years of you don't necessarily have to dive right into the super superheroics instantly. You can you can play with the characters a bit and establish the world and the characters before you get into the big action scenes. And it's when you think about it, so clever, you know, to give this orphan a childhood best friend. I mean, you know, I'm a little bit too literalist. I could never direct a comic book movie just because I'm too close to the material. I, I care about it too much. I would never have thought to give Batman sort of a childhood anchor in the form of Rachel Dawes. Mm -hmm. But what this ends up doing is, you know, Rachel is basically the, the help's daughter. And we never actually see her father. And so in my mind, I've kind of put together a sort of a backstory for Rachel <laughs> that basically says that, you know, she was partially orphaned herself. And so the death of Thomas Wayne, she didn't get to experience all of that for free either. You know, it's not as personal and, and uh, dare I say, traumatic for her as it was for Bruce Wayne. But I do think it affected her on a very 
core emotional level. And I think that you could kind of see Bruce and Rachel, at least in Batman Begins, and maybe even in The Dark Knight as kind of point-counterpoint to one another where they they, they both lost somebody. But what they've done with their loss and the way that it's galvanized them as people, completely different from one another. And and often in Batman stories, the only person who who knows Bruce slash Bats well enough to stand up to him is Alfred. And and he does some of that in this film as well. But it's nice to give him a contemporary who can also you know, talk sense to him, call him on his BS, mm-hmm. um, you know, who's that idea of, of, of the lifelong friend. Yeah. And, and the movie, I, I noticed it just in, in, in rewatching it, you know, you talk about the importance of this opening scene. The first word in the movie is Rachel. You know, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's calling out to her and almost, you know, a gauntlet thrown down saying we're going to start with this made up character, with yeah. this character who is only it's not going to be going to be. Yes. Bruce, Bruce Wayne has plenty of women in his past that you could have, you know, name checked. Yes. You know, for that one. Um, but there's there, there's almost this thing. This is something different. This is going to be a movie universe and we're going to insert a brand new character. I personally am not a fan of Katie Holmes performance in this uh, but I think the introduction of the character of Rachel is a, a bold choice and one that for the most part works you know th- not just this this movie but but throughout well I don't want to get too much into behind the scenes stuff but the reason it was hard for me to take Katie Holmes seriously to start with is the Dawson's Creek angle and I'd graduated from high school a pretty long time before this, by the time, you know, Batman Begins came out. But nevertheless, I would say like towards the latter portion of my high school career, that was really the sort of the heyday of Dawson's Creek. And Katie Holmes was a little bit of an icon to, to my generation. I wouldn't say she was to my generation what, say, oh, golly, now I'm, uh, what Farrah Fawcett was to you know, uh, a different generation. I'm not going to go that far. She wasn't that much of a poster girl, but there was a point when she was kind of the it girl, you know, and she, I, I guess I couldn't quite shake the, the kind of nineties era mm-hmm. drew Barrymore effect going that, you know, she was just so damn cute. And now here she is. You have cuteness intruding upon my Batman movie. And, you know, it's only been, I would say, probably since, golly, probably like the last three, four five years that I've been able to watch this movie and just appreciate Katie Holmes as an actress. Right. Yes, she's cute, but she is still an actress. Yes. And it I, maybe it, it maybe she benefits from. Uh, comparison to, I don't know why I'm blanking on all these actresses' nicknames uh, or their their names all of a sudden, but oh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Mm-hmm. But you know, compared to who her replacement was, you know, all at once, Katie Holmes is seeing pretty damn interesting. You know, so <laughs> uh, it's not that Mag- uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal is a bad actress; far from it. She's just 
there's always been something about her that's always just kind of weirded me out. I don't know what it is. So that sounds mean, and I don't want it to sound mean. But well, I'll, I'll, I will uh, I, I will see your meanness and raise you this. One of the disturbing things I found in this movie, mm-hmm. in certain scenes, Katie Holmes, she just looks her her face is somewhat asymmetrical. It's it's very odd. She has a very almost droopy face in some of her, in some of the scenes. I, I don't know what to make of it. Uh, mm. Very odd. Very odd. Mm. Well, fair enough. Uh, different strokes for different exactly. folks. But but you know when you have a flashback scene like this, um, you have to ask yourself: Could you see this kid growing into Christian Bale? And I think for the most part, I could. Yeah. And and I and I could certainly see the girl growing into, uh, growing into Katie Holmes. Well, and, and and that was something else. You know, the it, it another it, it wasn't a major news item, but one of the news items that came out was that there were going to be a couple of child actors in the movie playing characters whenever they were younger in flashback scenes. And instantly, I kind of had my dander up. I mean, look, it, call it the Jake Lloyd effect if you want. Exactly. But that had kind of put a lot of us on edge. And a couple of years before Batman Begins came out, another movie had come out called The Butterfly Effect, which had, I think, for like the main the main quartet of actors, there were two different sets of child actors to play them to play those characters at younger ages. There was the really young children. And then there was the more junior high age children. And I don't know who the hell did casting for that movie, but that guy needs a fucking raise because <laughs> he found. And at the time, this was a compliment, but he basically found eight Haley Joel Osments <laughs> right. and he put him in the movie and damned if they don't look like the characters, they don't sound like them. They don't act like I mean, this is some of the most perfect flashback child acting casting that I have ever seen. And I just thought, you know what? That was a statistical fluke on so many levels. There's no way that whoever is directing this movie is going to be able to even come close to reaching that standard. And if that's the standard that we're shooting for, no, they don't reach that level. But the child actors, they don't show up and act cute. They really do act. And there are limitations to their performance that let's face it, will would be tempered by age. It's just that child actors aren't necessarily the best. These kids don't stink up the screen. They do what they need to do, and then they get they go home, mm-hmm. you know, yes. and play with their Game Boys. And that's fine. You know, it's this was not the travesty some people truly feared it was it it, it would be. And I think really the the proof of all of that is I truly don't remember anybody commenting in the negative on these kids or for that matter in the positive but even that's kind of a compliment they were they're just there and then they're gone and no one really remarked on it too much but there is a moment though where young bruce and the actor's name escapes me but childhood bruce he cries and it's after his parents funeral he realizes this is going to be my life now my parents are gone and I'm, i'm 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 trying to not say that I have nothing because he does have things. It's just that the things that he has aren't substitutes for what he's lost. If that makes sense. And so 
And you can see that, you know, he really is overcome and the actor doesn't go the the child, he doesn't go too far with, you know, screaming and wailing and carrying on, but he's not faking it either. You know, he's in that, that sweet spot where he's overcome, but in the way that I think a child would be, you know, and you know, where it's at, at, at this point, your grief truly defies words. You know, you can't, it, you can't put into words what you're feeling, you know? And that's a really powerful thing for a child actor to bring across. I think, and again, I'm blanking on the kid's name, but damned if he didn't do the job, you know? So anyway, all right. So now to kind of move forward a bit, we move into this section of the movie where the shtick that's going on here is that Joe Chill is in the process of being released from prison as part of a plea deal. And this is really the first time that Bruce finds himself up against perceived injustice basically so that somebody can make a deal, you know? And there's a little bit of, you know, this is just kind of one of the hard realities of life that, you know, Bruce has to go through. And there's a moment in Man of Steel when Clark has to abandon Jonathan and just sort of leave him to his fate. And that was a very polarizing point of the movie for a lot of fans. And I don't want to get too much into that here, except to say that in that sequence, Zack Snyder chose to use Henry Cavill as young Clark, because we're supposed to believe that Clark is 17 years old in that sequence. And here's 30 something year old Henry Cavill trying to convince us that he's 17. And what you realize is Snyder could have cast a sort of a teenage actor to play Clark in that sequence, but he chose not to because he wanted us to associate this with Henry Cavill Mm -hmm. and specifically with Superman. And I think there's a similar philosophy going on here where Bruce is supposed to be something like 19 or 20 years old and you've got pushing 30 Christian Bale. And it's not a very... It's, if anything, this whole illusion is even less effective here in Batman Begins than it is in Man of Steel. But what I think Nolan wanted us to do was he didn't want to give us this subconscious escape hatch of associ- of disassociating Bruce's desire to want to shoot Joe Chill dead. He didn't want to give us the option of somehow divorcing that from Batman. It had to be Christian Bale, no matter how terrible that makeup looks or, or the wig or whatever else, it's got to be Christian Bale. And what, what works for me in this scene, mm-hmm. it, it ties into what we uh, talked about before that, that opening scene, because I guess the, they I think uh, he and Rachel, they may be riding in a car, I think at one point. Yeah. And, and he sort of shows her that he had a gun and she slaps him, pauses for a second, and slaps him again. Yeah. And what part of what makes me believe that is the fact that we've established that they've known each other all their lives. And that's a move that a lifelong friend can, 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 can pull off. Yeah. 
I well, thought that was one of one of the highlights of her character. I I, I agree. And she actually kind of hits him a little bit below the belt. I don't think she's unfair, but she kind of unleashed yeah. the nuclear option with him. Right. Bad enough that she hits him. That happened. And in a weird kind of way, he knew why he was being hit. He didn't need he didn't need to be told, but she went ahead and dropped the bomb on him anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Your father mm-hmm. would be ashamed of you. And again, it, it, it speaks to the bond that they have, uh, that they have from childhood. She knows exactly how to indict him in that moment. And I'm, a, I, I'm kind of a little bit sensitive to people hitting other people in movies or on TV shows or something like that. I mean, to me, the only time you hit somebody is whenever they hit you first, mm-hmm. you know, and then it's okay to hit them. Because now you're you're defending yourself, you know. This though, it ne- anything less than not just a slap to the face, slaps to the face would not have driven home reality to this guy. So, you know, this little he he, he has he has to know how shocked she is, and and to me, it's almost the first slap is is shock, then there is a beat, and the second slap is disappointment. I think. Yeah, and I just of all the movies. Or rather, all of the uh, the punches and the strikes and stuff that are thrown in this movie, you could say that those are maybe the ones that hit the hardest, you know. Right. He, and and you know, throughout this movie, there's an obvious theme hit over the head over and over about yes, you know, fear about fear. But I think sort of a secondary theme of Bruce looking for a father figure. This is really one of the few times that that is stated. I think. You know, where, yes. where, like you said, the the nuclear option is, is pulled out. The Thomas would have been very disappointed in you, little boy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, again, the fear gets hit over the head, over the head, over the head. Um, in actions, in speeches. Yes. Um, but I think the sort of the, the, the replacement father aspect is a little subtler. And this is, but this is one of the places where it's sort of, called called out a little bit or at least sets the stage for that where we can see obviously alfred and then and then the league of shadows and even lucius and these other people who are you know sort of filling that that role for him Mm -hmm. well and then there comes right on the heels of that scene there comes a point when bruce confronts falcone and falcone he he just to start their conversation, he knows who Bruce is, and the fir- literally the first words out of his mouth are, you know, what'd you do? Did you come here to thank me? But this is not a happy meeting between the two of them. This is from the from the outset, even though they sort of had common cause with one another, they are not friends, they are not peers. It would be fair to say they hate each other's guts literally from from the word go. And this is informative to Bruce, I think on multiple levels, not least of which being here he is, he's staring corruption right in the face. This is the, this is, this man is a murderer. He's killed people recently. And there is literally nothing Bruce can do to take him out or for that matter, even defend himself against his goons. This is it. I mean, this is, you could argue that up to this point, Bruce has lived a sort of sequestered, very cloistered kind of life. Right. 
and I would even go so far as to say perhaps pampered. No more. Here, there, you know, the, all the money in the world, all of the power, the wealth, the influence, he's still getting the snot beaten out of him by Falcone's goons. And the thing is, there is no justice in, in, in this arrangement. Bruce is the victim. He's been, number one. Number two, he's been denied his opportunity at revenge. And now, number three, he's being victimized again by somebody who makes a career of victimizing people, and no one's doing a friggin' thing about it. Because the city is that bad. Yes. And and I think it, it helps to have this direct confrontation with the mob boss who is so protected by the system of Gotham. And that's you know and you need Gotham to be a cesspool for Jim Gordon to stand out. Well, yeah, but I think there's another sort of mechanical aspect to this that if the entire infrastructure of Gotham City is otherwise on the up and up, if the murder of of the Wayne family was a statistical fluke, there's a very strong argument that, you know what, this city doesn't maybe actually need Batman. And one of the sort of complaints... And it's not a complaint. It's a, it's a minor quibble, I guess. I love Batman the Animated Series. But one of the things that kind of needs to be said about Batman the Animated Series and one of the reasons why I don't say it's definitive, the only reason I say it isn't definitive, is because what we see is an infrastructure of Gotham City that fundamentally works. The mayor mm, is right, – right. he's – basically honest the district attorney's office basically honest police force they're basically honest and you could make an argument that you know what this city doesn't necessarily need batman you know at least in terms of you know day-to-day right. crime now if what we're talking about is stuff like supervillains, it, it needs arkham but yes. it might not need batman to put the people in arkham right good point and, that's a good 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 point good a interesting way to put that yeah and the the situation on the ground in gotham city in batman begins is you can't go to the police because the police are crooks too the mayor well we can surmise i don't think we actually see a mayor in this movie but you can reasonably surmise that if everything else about gotham city is is corrupt and on the take at, at minimum, you don't know who to trust at, you know, best case scenario, worst case scenario, you know exactly who not to trust. And you've got some idea how many of them there are. And the clear takeaway message that Bruce has in this scene is that he's surrounded by cops, at least one judge. No one's lifting a finger to help him. No one's lifting a finger to help the people of Gotham City. So who's going to do that? I I think that's, there's something either fortuitous or a really good choice in basing a lot of Gotham on Chicago. Yes. (laughs) You know, as opposed to picking Washington, D.C., a big ungovernable city or New York City, the biggest, most ungovernable city, or even Detroit, a city that just, doesn't work, but picking 
a city with hundreds of years of corruption as part of its history. Um, I, I think was humorous, funny, meta. I'm, I'm not sure what it was, but I, it works. <laughs> but it works. I thought, you know, I looked at that and I just thought, you that's that's cheeky. I like that. <laughs> exactly. That works. So then from there we get. It's a little bit of Bruce kind of going on his own sort of, I don't know as I'd say a spiritual journey, but definitely a journey of some kind. Call it an intellectual journey, perhaps. Bruce basically endeavoring to understand what is a criminal, you know? And and I don't mean just basically somebody that breaks the law. Why do they break the law? Who are these people? You know, and what he wants to do first and foremost is understand how they think. And I don't think at this point he's necessarily got this idea of I'm going to put on a bat costume, go out there and kick a lot of ass. His thinking seems to be, at least to begin with, relatively more benign, at least to start with, that he wants to understand why these people do the things that they do. And that takes him on a little bit of a quest where now that he understands who these people are and what they do, at least somewhat, how to fight them. And the logical end for that is him meeting, well, I can't say Raish al Ghul, Raz al Ghul, um, a member of the League of Shadows, because you can't call him the League of Assassins, I guess because that would be... I honestly think the reason that he, that Chris Nolan wanted to call this institution the League of Shadows is that if you call him the League of Shadows, you can kind of see them as a sort of pre-industrial age type of mm-hmm. Illuminati, right. in a sense. Or maybe they're just a check against um, social corruption. Right. right. They are kind of a vigilante group, but not really. Whereas if you call them the League of Assassins, you, you, That's pretty, you, it's pretty hard to make them heroic in any sense. Yeah. If you're going to that point. Yeah. And so that I think is why the, the change was made. There needed to be that initial ambiguity about who these people are. If you want to, I mean, it, it, when you watch the movie once, it could be a little bit of a surprise to find out that they're a sort of covert paramilitary operation. <laughs> When you rewatch it, the signs are all there. It's just that you're so invested in Bruce's story at this point that you're not necessarily putting the pieces together. And so I like that the the movie can exist on multiple levels because there's not a ton of that in this movie. Generally, this movie wears its premise and its purpose on its sleeve. This is one of the few instances of a little bit of subterfuge or sleight of hand where the truth is staring you right in the face and you just didn't – Either you didn't put the pieces together or you were lacking that missing piece of the puzzle. And I think it actually it works really well whenever they bring out the farmer that Bruce is expected to execute. Right. And you find out who these people are really. And this is not the first time they've done something like this. No. And I liked uh, Liam Neeson in, in that role. And this is just about. His last movie before Taken, and I like to think 
that this was sort of one of the movies that began his transition from solid actor to strangely unexpected tough guy. Yeah. Who saw that coming? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if you go back and watch what was, I think it was Michael Collins. Was right. that one? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think anybody would have lo- watched that movie and said, you know what? That guy is going to be a major action star someday, <laughs> you know, but it starts know. here. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing that I like is Chris Nolan knew what he was up against whenever he was making this movie. And the fact is, in choosing Liam Neeson to be the villain, he's pl- he, he basically cast against type in that mm-hmm. Liam Neeson had typically played fairly virtuous characters. I mean, even Oscar Schindler. Right. You know, in the end... You know, look look what happened with him. And so to cast that guy as your villain, again, it goes into this, I think in Chris Nolan's case, this conscious effort towards redirection mm-hmm. and sleight of hand that he was working toward. Right. It would have been very easy to cast a more stereotypical villain actor in the part of of uh, Ra's al Ghul. Raz, Raz al Ghul. <laughs> I keep saying, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, and so. But like you said, b- but because it's Neeson, you don't necessarily see that flip coming. Until it happens. And I think it's got that extra sucker punch to it. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that Chris Nolan said again and again as he was doing press junkets and whatnot for Batman Begins is that, well, this has never been done before. This has never been shown before. Nobody's ever seen this before, et cetera. And, you know, the snooty inner comic book fan in me says, well, sir, I've read these comics. I'm here to tell you we've seen this stuff. But what he's, I think what, what I want to believe he means is that it had never been seen before in live action. And that is true. We had never seen this before. But Or by the... 35 million people who are going to go buy tickets. Correct. It's been been seen by eh, a couple hundred thousand of them. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, the thing is, even the stuff that we've seen, it didn't necessarily have this degree of depth to it. Because, you know, even in the comics up to this point, Batman's history, his training, his there's a sort of interstitial period between childhood Bruce and adult Batman that we would get glimpses of, but we never exactly. really saw fully developed. Yeah, it, 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 it had been hinted at, and, and the Asian aspect of that had been, had been laid into it, the Tibet, Nepal, whatever it is. Um, that vision quest aspect of it had been layered in as well, but you certainly hadn't spent this much time in that, in that world before. Right. And that – the it's really – Raz Al Ghul that gives the sort of missing pieces of the puzzle that Bruce needs to finally transcend and fulfill this ambition that he set for himself. Not just a new fighting style, although let's face it, Casey is, I guess as far as cinema is concerned, it was a new type of martial art. Or it's not even a martial art, but it was, it was a different method of combat than we'd seen in movies up to that point and yet it still looked sort of like that sort of born identity style of martial arts that had kind of become very trendy by that point 
And so it was – as far as marketing is concerned, it really is kind of interesting um, synergy, I suppose, that the fighting style that Bruce uses for most of this movie is more or less right where mainstream audiences wanted to be with their martial arts fighting scenes. And so even, even though it looks different, it still looks right mm. in terms of audience expectations of – you know, at that time, the other thing that it that it did is it gave chan- uh, Bruce a, a chance to assert a moral principle. Now, this idea of Batman not killing people is something that I've just never really found very persuasive. My personal opinion is that a guy who does what Batman does, who takes criminal justice into his own hands on everything else. For him to stop short of killing his adversaries is kind of arbitrary. Why would he do that? Nevertheless, that is the moral stand, or at least the moral ideal he aspires to. And so this is the first time where, number one, he gets a chance to assert that. But number two, it's the first time that he and his, let's face it, his mentor have had very different worldview challenges between the two of them. Now, if you want to answer this question, that's fine. If not, I'll cut it out. But this idea of Batman not killing his his opponents, is that something you've ever been able to believe in, or are you on the same page as me with that? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much on the on the on on your side for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is I can understand Bruce's Batman's unwillingness to use firearms. Yes. You know, psychological aspects of that. That's that's reasonable. But based on his pretty close relationship to Commissioner Gordon in in, in particular, you know, I, I I I don't have to see him as the best friend of of police, as you know, a literal official deputized member of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I don't need that. I don't want that necessarily. But conceptually, he, you know, to me, he is, you know, has the same right to use lethal force as a police officer soldier would, which is not to say arbitrary, which is to say with some limitations. Right. Well, but 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 it's not. It should not be off the table. Right. Well, and that's yeah, and that, and and that's the other thing. I mean, if nothing else, you know, I think I'm not trying to. Uh, and it's kind of funny. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna say this in you know the context of a fairly realistic movie. I don't want to go too real world here, but you know we do have you know good Samaritan laws, and if a good Samaritan, you know, tries to intervene in. I don't just some kind of criminal enterprise. He finds he's just he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And we've all seen those, you know, those surveillance videos where some guys he's at a a, a, a convenience store or something like that. Next thing he knows, he finds himself in the middle of a friggin holdup or something like that. In such a case, and if he decides to intervene. And in order to defend himself. He has to use lethal force. He has to basically kill the guy that's robbing the place. 
As far as I know, that is considered justifiable homicide because you're acting in defense either of yourself or of others against somebody who's using, if nothing else, a deadly weapon to commit a crime. And so at that point, you know, it's not just that the law is going to look the other way. The law is actually on your side, you know. And and I don't want Batman to be the Punisher. Well, I, and 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 I don't want and I want there to be a distinction between the Batman and Azrael. That being said, there doesn't need to. I I, I don't think there needs to be a flat out you know, policy of of never kill. Right. But you know, I'm, uh, few and far between. Based on specific circumstances, agreed that 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 fit the criteria as 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 you've described, right? And yeah, I I, I tend to agree. Yeah, and now the the degree to which you know he would do it. I mean, you know, I can understand the one argument I can give to the people who don't want to see Batman kill is that there is a and you sort of hinted at it, but there is a little bit of a slippery slope there mm-hmm. to where. If he kills the Joker, a son of a bitch who, let's face it, deserves it, then, well, somebody who's not quite as bad as the Joker but is still pretty bad, like, I don't know, like just generic mob boss, well, yeah, I guess that guy maybe deserves it too. I mean, yeah, you have to draw a line somewhere. Yeah, and so – The easiest line to draw is never. Right, and – so, you know, even if it like if that had been the the approach that Nolan had taken with this movie, honestly, it would have been a very different movie and probably a much longer one because that's an entirely different moral journey for a character to take. Right. Right. And so anyway, like I say, I mean it, it's neither here nor there. It's water under the bridge and there's nothing we can do about it now. So, it's at the very least though, I at least wanted to comment on it and that's actually you know, you know, Bruce having his his big showdown with the the League of Shadows is, I would say, the first major action set piece of the movie. And it's strange to think that, you know, the minute you say that you're 40 minutes into the friggin movie before you have a major action set piece. And it's kind of in retrospect, it's sort of a a mark of how well put together this movie really is that you're not you don't really feel that. You know, you really are invested in the story, but you're also you're you're invested in in Bruce Wayne's growth and his experiences, the things that he's going through. It's it's, it's not to say that up to this point nothing's happened. You know, that's that's not the case. No stuff has happened, just not a big fight scene has happened. Right, and it's a kind of a bold decision to make that. It's that far along. I mean, forget about even seeing the hero in costume and doing his thing, beating the, right. the snot out of people and all that fun stuff. This is really 40 minutes just before the first action scene, you know? And what I like about this is that Nolan, this is probably the most action movie oriented of the three movies that he did. But even here, you can see that he's pacing himself. He's choosing his moments. And I don't know, it, it just it, it, it plays like gangbusters for me, you know, in retrospect at the time, you know, 
what I wanted to see was Batman swoop into action, beat the snot out of people, and just do his thing. And now, having all of these years of distance from it, I'm, a, I'm able to enjoy it a little bit more now than I could before. And so there's something to be said for uh, detachment, I suppose. But that's really the, the... And there's a sort of weird segue going on here where Bruce no sooner splodes the League of Shadows headquarters up real good than he makes his escape and meets Alfred at an uh, at a landing strip and with the Wayne with the Wayne jet was did did he have a cell phone? Yeah, it's, was there what was the telegraphs? I mean, how did that happen? Yeah, I don't. It's <laughs> okay. It, I'm glad I wasn't the only one who wondered what did I just miss. Yeah, and the the most I can figure is Nolan. This is maybe the one one of the few times he was feeling the pinch. And he he did want to just move the story. We have think, to get to the next. We have to get the, the act two. Yeah. And even if it means literally walking away from act one and yeah. on to act two. Yeah. And that's that's exactly the way that I look at it. This is a very clumsy. It's not even a bridge. It's just boom. Here we are. <laughs> and, you know, but to transition it, it would have taken probably another five, maybe even 10 minutes of screen time. And it's just you got to get to the friggin point here. So. I, I roll with it. So, and it's on the plane ride back to Gotham City that Bruce, this is the audience's first chance in uh, several scenes at this point to kind of get an insight into his ideas. You know, this is the first time that he really kind of lays out his ambitions. What is his mission in Gotham going to be now that he's back? And it's kind of interesting to think that he, you know, on the one hand, he's got an idea of what he wants to do, but he doesn't have, even now, a fully formed plan of what he wants to do. And of course he wouldn't, you know? I mean, there's a certain amount of trial and error that kind of has to go into creating Batman as a secret identity. That's a journey, That's a sort of a separate journey that Bruce has to undertake. I mean, how to be Batman, oddly enough, has to come first. But then how to create Batman is a sort of a – one could say a faster journey, but nevertheless a separate journey. And that's exactly what we see happening here as Bruce rather slowly refines his methods and improves his tools to such a degree that he finally does arrive at this idea of using a symbol – not just, in fact, not just a symbol, but specifically a symbol of fear mm-hmm. in order to create this elaborate illusion that he is more than just a man. And, you know, it's kind of funny to think Tim Burton took a lot of crap because of a a, a comment that he made that, you know, Bruce wears a Batman outfit because he wants to give he wants to portray an image to his enemies of him being something that he's not. And he took an incredible amount of crap for that. But Chris Nolan doesn't really say that. He just shows that. And it ultimately works to the same. You know, he's just showing it. This is one of the rare instances of Tim Burton saying it. (laughs) 
and Chris Nolan showing That's right. it. Because usually it's it's vice versa, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but here, and it's just it's it's just it's one of those great ironies of Batman, I suppose. But anyway, so one of the key things Bruce realizes he needs to do, apart from Batman as a separate identity, he needs allies. It's not enough that. You know, he has all of these high tech tools. He's got a disguise. He's got the means to fight criminals literally on their turf. He needs a dividend. He needs to have, I can't say a team, but he needs allies. He needs people who are on his side. And in a city like Gotham, that. Few that, and far between. Yeah, it's tough to do. And what he eventually arrives at is. And I, what I. I don't know this to be true, but what I think we're supposed to infer is that the surveillance that Bruce does of the Gotham City Police Force actually goes on for several weeks. And it's all predicated on the assumption that there's got to be at least one honest motherfucker in here somewhere, (laughs) you know, and that is very true. There is one honest guy in there. And that honest guy obviously is Jim Gordon. And. Batman basically, it's not even it's not even a, a, a recruitment. But basically, Batman conscripts Jim Gordon, and I kind of like this approach. I've because if you think about it, you know, the way I think most people would instinctively want to tell this story is that Batman and Gordon would kind of find themselves as sort of unwitting and possibly at first unwilling allies with one another. And then they would grow to accept each other. And what we see in, in Batman begins is no, there's nothing coincidental about this at all. Batman sought him out. And to me there, this is one of the things you have to get right to tell Batman, a Batman story well, the relationship between him and Gordon. Because I always go back to the very first panel of Detective Comics 27. Yes. It's Bruce Wayne and his old buddy, Commissioner Gordon, chatting. Yeah. And I mean, that is, I mean, that is literally the first, you know, the first side character uh, we get is, is Commissioner Gordon. Mm-hmm. And if you get that right, that relationship right, then you're going a long way to telling the story right. In the same way, if you're telling a Sherlock Holmes story, you've got to get Watson right. Yes. Or else the relationship, you know, the, the rest of the story falls apart if that's wrong. So this this relationship with the one good cop has to exist and and be done well uh, for the just for everything else to hold together. Right. And you know, up to this point, a lot of the creative decisions that Chris Nolan has made, he won a lot of goodwill among Batman fans. But this partnership with Gordon is a different thing entirely, I would say, where this is something that now has truly never been done in live action. You know, the Batman-Gordon partnership, this was... Uh, a fresh idea for big screen cinema. And so as a result, it's a fresh idea for wide audiences. Mm -hmm. And 
Tim Burton took a lot of shit from a lot of fans that he never really showed the the Batman Gordon team. And I guess my answer to that would be, well, number one, there really wasn't an opportunity for that in the two movies that Burton did. But number two, the the comics that Burton was most influenced by, which I believe were primarily Golden Age comics, Gordon and Batman, they were loosely affiliated with one another. But Gordon was basically there, let's face it, to provide exposition. Sure. And he wasn't, you know, I guess you could infer a sort of a, a mutual respect between the two. But this idea of, you know, them being on each other's speed dials, it just I don't think that would have been accurate at that time. I, I don't think really that that was a thing in comics until Frank Miller and this idea of, you know, Batman and Gordon, sort you know, Gordon being sort of the uh, sort of a proto Robin or a non Robin Robin or something, you know, right. that kind of a partner that really wasn't explicit in comics until like 1987. And the first Tim Burton Batman movie went into production at the end of 1987. So do the math, you know, when would Burton have ever had a chance to take all of that into account from a creative standpoint? So, you know, it, I think that, you know, Burton is kind of wrongly mistreated, you know, for a lot of that. It was time though, at the time that, Nolan was making this movie, it was time to start bringing this to the big screen, though. Mm -hmm. And I think the end result is actually very powerful and it's very effective. Mm -hmm. And and, and certainly one of the one of the first jobs of a director is casting. Yes. And I think Gary Oldman. Pretty hard to beat. In terms of this of, of this role. Very solid. Great choice. Well. In retrospect, I mean, at yes. the time, yep. I don't think, I don't think very many people thought Commissioner Gordon, and then said to them, "Well, uh, sorry, Sergeant Gordon." <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, very many people thought Jim Gordon, and instantly associated Gary Oldman with that because up to that point, again, this is Nolan kind of casting against mm-hmm. type in a certain way, where he here he 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 cast a, a typically heroic care, uh, actor as the, the movie's villain. Right. And he did sort of the inverse here where he cast a, a sort of a, a, an actor who I think was probably more known for playing the villain at this, at this juncture yes. of his career that, that's as, fair. as sort of the hero mm-hmm. cop. Right. And I don't know if this is a little bit more of Chris Nolan's sleight of hand where he was playing against your expectations or if mm-hmm. he really wanted us to, to see virtue in Jim Gordon. I don't know. But you can't argue with the results. I mean, mm-hmm. Gordon in Batman Year One, and I would say through a lot of those sort of Year One era type of stories, he is a he is a dead ringer for yes. Gary Oldman in yeah. this movie. And you know, it's whenever I, I remember seeing the first publicity photo of Gary Oldman as Gordon. And I do, this is going to sound bad, and I don't want it to sound bad, but it's one of those things where you don't need to see the movie to know that this is how this is going to play out. I didn't need to see this movie to know that Gary Oldman was going to kick ass a, 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 as Jim Gordon. I just, we all knew that. Or 
when Henry Cavill is announced as playing Superman, we didn't need to see the movie. We knew he was going to he, he was going to kill it or we didn't need to see Christian Bale actually be Batman. We knew he was going to kill it. I mean, there are certain casting decisions that are kind of gimmies. Sometimes, you know, you get the Heath Ledger effect where, no, I need to see this to believe it. But sometimes you sometimes, you know, it's so blindingly obvious. And speaking of blindingly obvious, there is actually another casting decision that we've sort of that's sort of fallen by the wayside here. And that's unfortunate. But that would be Morgan Freeman playing Lucius Fox. And again, I didn't need to see the movie to know exactly. that was going to work. It <laughs> it never crossed my mind that this wasn't going to work. Now, there's an argument and kind of a criticism, really, that Morgan Freeman kind of plays Morgan Freeman in this movie. And I can't really disagree with that. But on to the some extent, hand. that's who Lucius Fox is. Well, yeah. <laughs> no. But I guess I'm. there are certain actors that I'm willing to give a lot of indulgence to. And he's kind of, I mean, like, I don't know why, but Tom Cruise has got to earn it for me in every movie he's in. And the thing is, I mean, he, his reputation notwithstanding, he really is a good film yes. actor. You know, he's, he's very talented. But for some reason, I don't know why, he's got to prove that to me every fucking movie he makes. Morgan Freeman, he always gets the free pass from me every single time. I don't know why, but... So for him to kind of – I don't want to say he sleeps through this movie because I don't think that's fair to him. But he sort of plays that sort of genteel sort of grandfather type of thing, you know, the wise elder sort. And in a weird kind of way, he's one of – I mean if you want to – I don't really like this interpretation of the movie. But there are some people who view this movie as Bruce Wayne having prolonged encounters and at times confrontations with various of his father figures. And if that's the approach you care to take with the movie, you could view Morgan Freeman as yet another father figure for Bruce. And at least in the case of Morgan Freeman, he's just kind of paternal to begin with anyway. Right. It's easy to believe him. So I just I really dig Morgan Freeman in all of these all of his movies, really, but especially these three movies. And I, I you know, I I like the idea that again Part of it's Morgan Freeman. Part of it's Lucius Fox. Can you pull those apart? Mm-hmm. But you know the idea that he's not an idiot. He pretty much knows pretty quickly what's going on. Yeah. And again, whether we're bringing Morgan Freeman, you know, wise, uh, you know, the wise old man into that interpretation. Either way, it to me it works. It does kind of make you wonder, though. In the Dark Knight, it's. The only way – I mean it, it's explicit in that movie. Lucius knows damn good and well who Batman really is. In this movie though, it's a little bit more up for grabs. Does Lucius know the truth? Well, based on The Dark Knight, we have to say the answer is yes. The question is – and he actually makes a point of saying this. Dude, I'm not stupid. But, he, but the question is when does he figure it out? And – you know, is it when he brings over the antidote for the fear toxin or is it later in the movie? Is it when he sees Batman, you know, running over cop cars? I mean, when does he to put- me? That's that's the uh, no matter how far along he may have been in that path. 
that's the one that pushes you over the edge. Yeah. Is when you see the tumbler tumbling through Gotham City. Yeah. It's just it, it, the, the the one of a kind prototype. <laughs> yeah. Well, and as we find out later, maybe it's not so one of a kind, <laughs> but well, we'll come back to that at, at a different time, I, I, I suspect. But in any case, I just sort of wanted to ask you about that. It's it's made explicit. As far as I can remember, nowhere in this movie that Fox is in on the secret, but it is completely explicit that he does know in the Dark Knight. So it is kind of fun to speculate, you know, well, when did he figure it out? So anyway, but the. From there, you know, Batman's kind of assembled his loose team of allies, and now it's time to go after Falcone, takes him down and. What I like about this scene, you know, sort of Batman's debut is, number one, he makes a hell of a splash to begin with. I mean, Mm -hmm. he doesn't content himself with just, you know, beating up the occasional purse snatcher here and there. He goes for the big shark pretty much right away. That that's his opening salvo. And so, number one, I just like the balls of that. But number two, it's an it's. A nice reversal of that diner scene with Falcone and Bruce, right. where Falcone's thugs, you know, beat the stuffings out of Bruce and then toss him out of the bar. Well, here, Bruce intrudes on them once again. He beats up the thugs and then he beats up Falcone. And that is such a perfect reversal mm-hmm. of that scene in. In the bar, it's now Bruce, in a sense, kind of avenging himself. He can't avenge his parents. I mean, ship sailed on that, but he did sort of get a little bit of his own self-respect back. And I like I li- one one little part about that scene. I like, and I don't know exactly how much sense it makes, uh, except that you know Batman can do anything uh, in, in 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 some interpretations. Is Falcon? I guess he gets out of the car to see what's going on, and he runs back in and. He sees that his driver has been beaten up as well. Yeah, and I'm not exactly sure how and when that could. I don't when that uh, Batman could have pulled that one off, but oh, of I like it. I like it. <laughs> I like it. Good. He's uh, a yeah. he's Batman. Exactly. Um. Yeah. <laughs> and then he head then and then he you know headbolts Falcone, which works for me too. Indeed. Yeah, me it's too. Sort of, and then he turns him into the first bat signal. Yeah, and it's. You can see that, you know, the moment when the penny drops for Gordon, he's looking up at that sort of bat-shaped silhouette, and the wheels are turning. Now, I mean, we can debate amongst ourselves, you know, how effective uh, a summons is the bat signal really? Because, you know, the curvature of the Earth means that there's no way Bruce is going to be able to see it from his mansion, but somehow he can because comics. Exactly. But it's just not all that realistic. But. Actually, it's kind of funny to think the the Dark Knight actually sort of plays with that a little bit and what exactly the purpose of the bad signal is. And again, we'll get to that when we get to that. But I do kind of like the the use of the bad signal in the Dark Knight. But that's for a future episode. At least for now, you can see. Actually, you know what? You can see arguably the seeds of that of how the bat signal is used in the dark night. You can see the seeds of that as Gordon looks up at the bat shaped silhouette in the, in the cloud that's created by Falcone that maybe, well, whatever. Anyway, uh, that only just occurred to me, but anyway, so 
Batman makes a splash in the criminal underworld. He finds out he gets put on the trail of of Jonathan Crane. And this is the other new villain. Or actually, depending on how you view Falcone, one of three villains from the comics that we see in this movie. And Killian Murphy is that's who plays Jonathan Crane in this movie. And I don't know. What are your thoughts there? I mean, like, how did you dig uh, Murphy as, as Crane? Or did you dig Murphy as Crane? Oh, I think I did. Because I think he, I think he does the somewhat condescending psychologist pretty well. Yes. And and that to me is the heart of the character. And I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure how much he does with, you know, super villain and, and all of that. But certainly I've seen talking to Rachel and, 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 and other scenes, you get that what 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 we're doing here, your your little mind wouldn't understand anyway. Yeah. <laughs> when he's talking with the nurses at uh at, at Arkham, for example. And <laughs> and 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 others. He is clearly views himself so far above them, which some medical doctors, some surgeons, some uh, psychologists can get. Some professors <laughs> can, can get that way among, uh, among others. So I think that aspect of the haughtiness, he, he, he was able to, to pull off uh, very well. Well, one of the things that I kind of struggled with with this character is that the character is right, which is to say it's true of the character in the comics. I'm not saying he's right. factually right, but anyway, whatever. Um, the character is right, but his canon is pretty far off. And the reason that kind of bothered me at the time is that you know, Jonathan Crane in comics is a character who's every bit as haughty as you say. It's just that the system never recognized that. They never recognized his true brilliance, which, let's face it, isn't brilliance. It's cruelty. And they never enfranchised him in the system and so on. And so – and here what we see is a Jonathan Crane who's in charge of, uh, of uh, Arkham. He's clearly – a, a little bit of a – I can't say a celebrity, but he is a little bit of a professional witness in a lot of um, you know, Gotham City trials and, and whatnot. He's somebody that's on a first-name basis with probably the majority of the district attorney's office. Mm-hmm. And this is a guy that's extremely successful and in the framework in which he operates, effective at what he does. And – it kind of bothered me at the time that, you know, the sort of the franchise of the Scarecrow is that he's lashing out against a system that he believes he's more brilliant than, but he's in fact too incompetent to truly be a part of. And that was always sort of the dichotomy of the character. And and his rationale for all of this is that they're afraid of me. And so he devises as his weapon a gas that achieves what subconsciously, like deep down inside, he knows he can't. He can't make anybody afraid of him. 
That's why he needs the gas. But he tells himself that they are afraid of him, and that's what's holding him back. But that's that's just an excuse. And so, you know, on the one hand, that is not at all what we see happening here. On the other hand, though, what we do see is, I think, in some ways, almost as interesting in that this is a guy, everybody has known somebody like this. He's the ultimate toady. You know, whoever is in charge of stuff, whether it's, you know, whoever the big boss is and, you know, at your job or, you know, whoever, you know, the, the scariest bully is on the playground, this guy, the professional toady, will always identify the most powerful person in the room and find a way to suck up. And that is a, more or less what we're seeing here. He's – his ally – or rather, he is he is the ally of – we later find out – Raz al Ghul. <laughs> Sorry. And that to me is a very interesting take on the Scarecrow. Whatever – whoever the most scary and deadly guy is on the block, that's the guy he's going to be best friends with because – as much as anything, he is a sniveling coward, and he wants to save his own skin. That's who this guy is in the movie. And that is so interesting as a character because this you, is a guy – You see to, – to me, sorry to interrupt. You see that in his some of his interactions with Falcone mm-hmm. in where – I mean Falcone is certainly physically – could do a lot of damage to Crane. Yes. But he doesn't because Crane keeps telling him, well, you know who is coming to town. And, you know, he has really, in essence, figured out a way to, at least locally, you know, put himself above the big boss in town. You know, uh, Falcone is scared of him because of who he stands for. Right. You know, who he, who, who he, who he's representing, who, who he's the mouthpiece for. Right. And that, I think, is what this type of person lives for. Mm-hmm. Lording their – it's not even their power, but sort of right. their power by proxy mm-hmm. over others. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll get my big brother to whoop your ass. You know, that kind of mentality. <laughs> and a guy like Crane lives for stuff like that. This is not the guy who's ever going to fight the power. He wants to be right – he wants to be – at the power's side so that he's not the one that's getting victimized. And maybe he can do some victimizing himself. And if you ask me like that, that type of just kind of spineless, amoral type of person, those are some of the very scariest in life that you'll ever meet because they have absolutely no defined sense of right and wrong. They have no principles that they live and die by. All there is is power and how to get, not even how to get it for themselves how to get next to it. And that to me is fucking terrifying. So anyway, um, but that actually is a pretty good little summary of, of what ends up happening. You know, Batman tries to take crane out and vastly underestimates the situation and ends up getting taken out himself. And this is really the first time that Batman as a, as an, a sort of a secret identity has failed Bruce. And this is an important failure for Batman. I think to have that, you know, yeah, you're dangerous and you've got incredible fighting skills and you're a very, well, you're a decent detective, 
and all of these other things, but you're not perfect. You can make mistakes. You need to learn how to do your job better. You know? So he ends up getting rescued by Alfred. Alfred has no choice but to call in Fox. And honestly, I think this is this really is the moment that Fox kind of figures it out. You know, how the fuck does Bruce ever get poisoned like this if he's (laughs) just out doing millionaire playboy stuff? So, you know, I, I, I don't know for sure that this is, you know, when Lucius was kind of clued in on things, but I think you could very easily make the argument. But in any case, uh, it comes out that Crane is basically been poisoning Gotham's water supply. And what with, you know, Falcone now being trapped in the nut house, it's pretty much on Rachel to investigate the, at least the possibility of Crane's corruption. And that's what ends up getting her in deep shit. Batman has to come to the rescue. And then we get another major action set piece in this movie. And before we even get into that, we get a very nice sort of year one shout out where Bruce summons bats to swarm the Gotham city police. (laughs) Yes. And what I kind of like about this is that Batman isn't necessarily out to beat the crap out of Gotham police. He doesn't want to do that. Now, at, you know, just later in the sequence, what we see is he he's running over cop cars and all of this stuff. So he's not averse to, you know, if he has to. As gently as possible, taking the police down, that's not necessarily what he wants to do, whereas in year one, he was not he didn't really think twice about beating the snot out of even out of police officers. Now, yes, these are corrupt cops. These are dirty cops. These are cops who've probably killed people for money, so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, they still wear the badge. And that is not a line that Batman seems overly anxious to cross in this movie. And so, like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, there, there is there is a line that within this that sort of points out the unlikely fact that no one's killed in this fight in this particular chase scene. Yeah. And there's some humor actually in, in the chase scene as well. A bit. And I think though those, that comment and, and you know, the, the little jabs at humor are to somewhat either distract you or, or lessen the, the idea of he is rolling over cop cars and driving them into, you know, a, a Concrete into concrete blocks and dividers and and, and 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 so forth. But it's a pretty great chase scene. Yeah, and including tr- a flying off of a parking deck onto another parking deck and under and over and you know we, again we just we just hope that somehow either he actually does know that Gordon is the only honest cop and that you know everyone else is corrupt or he somehow can tell. Which ones are the corrupt ones? And he just drove over their cars. Yeah. Well, one, he's one or the other. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I, you know, it's, it's strange to think that it was 2005 before we got 
a really fun, really thrilling car chase involving Batman. I thought that, you know, for one like practical thing, if your image of the Batmobile is a long, sleek, uh, you know, that, that sports car, mm-hmm. well, what can you do with that? I mean, you can drive fast and escape, but, you know, having this sort of custom-made, you know, military grade uh, vehicle makes that almost more shudder to use the word believable <laughs> well, you know, than, than, than just a traditional chase scene because it, it can't just be a chase it has to be a fight scene a bit yeah well what I like about it is you can buy the fact that this Batmobile as you say, it can go incredibly friggin' fast. You can buy into that. Whether or not it, in fact, can go really friggin' fast, well, who knows? But you can at least buy into the illusion of it. But this is one of those things where I don't think Chris Nolan has ever commented on it publicly, but I've always wondered, was he fucking with us a little bit? Because if all you hear is just the fact of it, which is... The Batmobile drives up a roof. Well, that was something that people burned in effigy about Batman Forever, you know? And, you know, wow, the Batmobile just drives across roofs, I guess. And now here Nolan is arguably playing with fire in terms of, you know, the the prejudices of the audience. And he does it in a way that, as you say, has the veneer of believability to it. And I can't help but think, at least on some level, this was Nolan just kind of fucking with us a little bit. But I don't know. I will never know, I guess. Yeah, could have been. And, and, and again, it's not that, you know, a movie like this isn't – you're not trying to be realistic or even plausible, but maybe persuasive that this could be. Um, and, and I think there's that uh, – I think there's a persuasive case that this might be what it would, what it could look like, <laughs> um, you know. But I, I also, but again, on, on the Batmobile in 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 particular, you know, this this version of it, you know, to get all of the all of the uh, again weapons and the shielding and the all the things that you know that that this machine can do, mm-hmm. it would have to be so expensive. That it could only be paid for by the Pentagon. And to me, <laughs> to me, that that alone is you know is 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 funny enough that it's not a you know just a customized, even expensive sports car. Mm-hmm. You know the multi millions that it would take, that it would have to be a government prototype. Well, and that was something about about this movie that frankly it took a very long time for me to get used to was. When I when I read Batman comics, what I usually do is just assume that the the car that Batman is you was using, and this is all pre Batman Begins, you understand. But basically, the car that Batman was using was a customized Lamborghini, or it was a Maserati, a Ferrari, a Corvette, um, or, or a Camaro. You know, just whatever it was going to yep. be, and he just modified it, and. For some reason, I just thought that was, I don't know, more persuasive somehow. Mm-hmm. And 
what we see here, this is a Batmobile that is never going to be mass produced. It's never going to be available to, to the common man. It is whatever it is. It's a prototype, you know, and not available to just anybody. And I didn't, it took some time, but I, you know, I didn't like the look of it. I didn't like it. Certainly, it, it certainly looks like no Batmobile ever before or exactly. since or since probably. Yeah. It, it is not that sleek Italian sports car model. Yeah. And what I eventually kind of came to realize was that again, it's the, it's the Tim Burton effect, you know, whatever it was that Tim Burton did, I've got to do something different. And so he had a very sleek, uh, and kind of roaring and powerful sort of uh, jet engine powered customized sports car. So I need a tank. <laughs> and so, you know, it, I like it now. I, 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 at least in the sense that I can, I can see where Nolan's coming from here. It just, it took a lot of getting used to put it. That it's, way. it's, it's for me, it's almost as if I don't want this to be the norm but I'm glad that there is a version of Batman that has something like this in it. Right. So all in all, uh, it, it's okay. So, and after the chase, what we've, what we discover is that a micro, a, a Wayne enterprises, another Wayne enterprises prototype, this time a microwave emitter has been, uh, it's been stolen by parties unknown for purposes unknown. And so, I mean, just film, you know, screenwriting 101. We are going to hear more about this before <laughs> credits roll, methinks. So basically, though, this microwave emitter, what it basically does is it superheats water instantly to the boiling point such that it vaporizes it. And as somebody who vapes himself, I'm, you know, it's not microwaves, but I, you know, I can at least believe in this type of technology. Now, do devices like this truly exist? I mean, can they just instantly vaporize water in this way? And to me, it's kind of irrelevant. I kind of come from the the director as wizard school of of cinema, where the magical widget works the way the director says it works because he says it works that way. And that's all I need to know. So what... And then going back to the Batmobile idea, the I, no, the notion that big defense contractors, which is what Wayne Enterprises is, is, is turning into yes. in this, not the arc of the company uh, is, is that direction. That again, that, that, that a one-off concept like that, that an attempt to, to do something like that could be funded by some you know, black budget Pentagon uh, you know, stash of money is right. is to me is is more plausible than it being a mass produced you know, you know part of the, the the standard Wayne Enterprises product line for everyone to purchase. Cool. You know that you know, that there are these devices used in used in warfare or even just used in training or attempt to be developed through some you know black budget, something or another. Yeah. Uh, you know, having that part of the story laid in uh, helped me believe you know, those aspects of the, of the plot. Well, 
one of the reasons that I guess maybe one of the reasons that I kind of roll with this is that there's an objective here that that's being attempted, you know, having stolen the microwave emitter. Basically, the plan is to vaporize Gotham City's water supply and basically render Crane's drug airborne and in so doing cause mass hysteria, the end result of which will destroy the city. Now, and the purpose of destroying the city is to build it up better than ever before. Correct. Because this is what one of the things the League of Shadows has done over the centuries. But they're using different tactics in mm-hmm. in, in this case. And the reason that works for me is because what how true this is, I have no idea, but what I surmise is that in times past, basically the League of Shadows would invade, insert city here, and basically burn the shit to the ground. And that's not what, that's specifically not what they're trying to do here. They want the city to destroy itself. Mm-hmm. And their moral argument here, like to the degree that they have one, but their moral argument here is that the city is already destroying itself. All we're doing is speeding up the process. And I kind of like the symbolism of all of, well, not the symbolism, but I kind of like the metaphor, I guess, of all of that, of using an, an external force to accelerate an internal process. This is already happening naturally. All we're doing is just um, pushing the turbo button. That's all, right. you know? And it speaks to what Batman is truly up against in terms of cleaning up Gotham City. And it also emphasizes the point that, you know what? The League of Assassin or sorry, the League of Shadows are morally wrong, but they are still factually correct. Mm. Right. And they we never get to quite the level of sympathizing with the league of shadows on the one hand, which is good. Cause frankly, I'm right. kind of done with <laughs> this idea of sympathizing with villains. I just want a villain now who can just fucking be evil. You know, I don't see what's wrong with that, but you know, here, what we have is a villain arguing. I, I and I think making a very powerful and very persuasive moral argument on the one hand, but on the other hand, his his solutions, his methods are so fucking evil that there is no justification for this. Right. You know, and, you know, there, there's, you know, they're they're looking big picture. They're they they are in the uh, egg cracking business to make omelets, or we have to, you know, we have to clear cut some of the forest so the, you know, so so the fire doesn't take the entire forest. Indeed. We have to clear cut the weak trees. Right. And it almost kind of reminds me of that. And, and you hear it a lot associated with Vietnam. We're burning down the village in order to save it. Right. Mm-hmm. And what the fuck kind of sense is that supposed to make? But nevertheless, there you have it. So um, now in the process of doing all of this, it, you know, at Bruce Wayne's birthday party, the League of Assassins actually crashes it. And one of the major revelations, like of the two major revelations that come out of this sequence, one of them is, number one, Gotham is pretty well screwed here. Mm -hmm. The other one is that 
Henry Ducard, played by Liam Neeson, number one, he's still alive, and number two, like hard truth number two, he is in fact Ra's al Ghul. And needless to say, this is sort of the worm turns kind of moment for Bruce on so many levels. Number one, that, you know, the League of Assassins wasn't completely decimated as a result of his actions. Number two, including including his actions of saving Liam Neeson. Yes. And this is actually coming back to bite him now. Yep. This is the moment when the hero's conscience actually carries a moral consequence to it now. And because, you know, you can say whatever you want about the upper crust of Gotham City that maybe they're as corrupt as anybody else. Nevertheless, we are still talking about human life, and nobody deserves to just get shot down like animals like that. And nevertheless, that's the situation that they're facing. You know, these may not necessarily be innocent, in quotation marks, people. Maybe they are, but maybe they're not. But either way, Bruce has got to do something to save their lives. And so the only thing he can think to do is kick him out of the party, at which point the League of Assassins sets Wayne Manor on fire and they leave Bruce for dead. And this kind of hits home for Bruce on multiple levels in that he really hadn't shown much affection for his heritage, his like the Wayne legacy, the Wayne name, the Wayne Manor. He he the loves Wayne responsibility, as as Alfred points out to him. Yeah. And that's a kind of again, I mean, it's just maybe it's just the number of sort of aristocratic people that I've known in life. But they do kind of have this sort of uh, patronizing view of things. Well, I have a responsibility to lead, you know, and, you know, this is our family's obligation, you know, to to be a light to the little people, you know, and all of that. And, yes. uh, you know, some of them really do believe that, you know, but um, Bruce, he has a lot of love and affection for his parents. But in terms of his family name, he's not really much invested in that. And or at least superficially, he's not. Now, it's only whenever he sees Wayne Manor burning to the ground that he realizes how much the his name has always meant to him. Right. He just never allowed himself. This was I, I and I can't help but think this was a degree of, of Bruce's mourning for his parents that he just did not allow himself to experience what this means for the Wayne family legacy. You know, there are things that. Thomas Wayne was never able to accomplish in his life because it was cut short. And that's all part of the Wayne legacy. Thinking about what that means for him on a personal level is maybe just that extra degree of twisting the knife that Bruce just didn't want to have to subject himself to until, in a weird kind of way, Joe Chill killed his parents, but in a weird kind of way, Ra's al Ghul kind of killed them again in burning down Wayne Manor. Mm-hmm. And, and and of course, in to Ra's, there's a sense of justice here because Bruce had burned down his house. Yes. And that's kind of the, you know, I don't I don't want to get too meta here, but or I don't know if, if, if meta I may. I, I don't want to. I don't want to give this too much thought, but this does kind of say something about the cycle of violence, you know? Where the cycle of violence, 
it just fucking it once it starts it's incredibly hard to stop and i don't i mean this isn't really an element of any of the movies that you know bruce has embarked upon this this cycle of violence and it's slowly eating him alive you know on the one hand he doesn't really seem to pay that very much thought but it's kind of inescapable in the narrative that mm-hmm. you know just in departing from Gotham and ultimately joining forces with Ra's al Ghul, Bruce is starting something that's that can only have very bloody consequences. And, you know, this is an action movie, so, you you know, I understand you don't want to necessarily ponder every single moral argument that you could make based on the material. But it does kind of make you think that, you know, there is a little bit of dramatic mojo there that maybe some Batman movie in the future can tackle that when you start this process, it's not necessarily going to get better. There's a very good chance, in fact, that it could just get worse and worse. We, we get a very hint. We get a hint of that at the very end of the movie. Oh yeah. And anyway, I there's uh, as a filmmaker, you know, one must make choices. You can't necessarily explore every single idea that you have. You know. Sometimes there's a lot to be said for just staying focused. But I do think there's a lot of dramatic mojo to all of that. But anyway, so from there we get the sort of the thrilling conclusion where um, the League of Assassins basically launches their their dastardly plan to destroy Gotham City. And it's up to Batman to save the day. And indeed he does. But because of the fact that so much of this is related to, you know, action and fights and chases and stuff like that, it sort of defies rational commentary unless you've got something you want to throw in there. No, just, you know, um, I like the, uh, elevated train as a roller coaster. Yes. Sort of. That was a nice, that was a nice scene. And then just, just, you know, the way the, the cinematography of that, it's almost sort of a first person point of view for a little bit. Um, so I, I liked, I, I liked that also in this scene, uh, or in this portion, he reveals himself to Rachel. Mm-hmm. And so I guess mm. in, in general, how do we feel about heroes telling their girlfriends or other people who they are? It happens all the time in comics. And at some point, that's one of the big steps is who do I tell? Well, the both uh, specifically in this movie or 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 more broadly, if you have thoughts on that, I'm curious. Well, at the moment that it happened, the first time I watched this movie, I was actually okay with it because Batman and Rachel had a very platonic type of friendship. Right. At I would say like for ninety nine point nine percent of this movie, it's very platonic in nature. And there are times when it. I, I don't know if I can use the word professional, but they do kind of have a little bit of a professional relationship as well in the Batman-Rachel partnership. Mm-hmm, right. And so in, – in, in a sense, you know, Gordon's the one good cop. She's the one good DA. Yeah. And what I took from this scene at, when, you know, Batman metaphorically unmasked himself was that – there was a part of him that thought there's not there's only one way I can survive this 
there are millions upon millions of ways that this could get me killed. And by numbers, I'm not likely to survive this. And so I want her to know who I am and why I'm doing this Mm. now rather than have to face the shock of, you know, somebody finding my body and then I get unmasked as Bruce Wayne and she has to wonder what the fuck was I thinking now specifically by repeating that line. It's not enough that he had to let her know that he's Bruce by repeating that line back to where it's not who I am underneath. It's what I do that defines me. He's basically saying that number one, I'm Bruce, but number two, I'm trying to achieve something. You know, there, you know, you thought you knew who I am and you don't. And that's, that's number one. But number two, I am trying to achieve something. I'm trying to make this city a better place. And this is how I've chosen to go about doing that. And it was very important that she know about that before, as far as Bruce knows, he dies, you know, now as it happens, he doesn't die. And I, you know, I originally wanted to say that the sort of, romantic angle of their relationship it sort of came out of nowhere but at this point he's shown this woman his soul she knows him from the very beginning and he's got a connection with her that no other woman he'll ever meet in life can ever hope to match and i i think that you can be i don't know friends is probably not the right word but you can be kind of connected with somebody And there comes a point or maybe a few points where that connection, it can turn under the right circumstances. Yeah, I like I I like the idea of lifelong platonic friends that doesn't always play in movies. No, I mean, there's always a love story of some kind. Well, and, you know, the marketing there says that. Men will respond to, you know, big explosions and fistfights. Women will respond to the the emotional stuff, the crying and the dying and, you know, people kissing and stuff. And so if you can put both of those things into one movie, theoretically, you're attracting both halves of the audience. It's just that it I can kind of roll with it here, but I've always been of the opinion that, you know, Superman, a love story is sort of interwoven with him and his mythos is sort of inescapable but characters like spider-man to some degree and definitely batman they don't necessarily need a love interest and there are times when it's kind of shoehorned in anyway just to make sure that we get the women on board and i mean if that sounds you know demeaning towards women well i'm sorry but studies are what they are that is why yeah I, 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 I liked it here um, partially because it's a sign of his trust of uh, in her, the trust he has in her, which again, as we said, works because they're lifelong friends. Yes. I'm less comfortable with the – this is our third date. I just learned what your middle name is. By the way, I'm Superhero Man. <laughs> you know that does the, that doesn't work for me. This this uh, that aspect of the, the revelation of the secret identity worked because of what they had layered in up to this point. Right. Okay. All right. Well, the 
I think it actually, for purposes of Batman and Rachel, it actually does work okay. I mean, I think you, honestly, you didn't have to turn this into a love story in order for audiences to have been invested in it. But, you know, I mean, I've kind of said my piece on that. But there's another thing that happens here. And this, for its time, kind of broke the internet in half, which is to say, Batman, I'm just going to describe what happened and I'm going to let you kind of have first whack at it. But basically, Batman blows a hole in the train. First, he sabotages the train tracks. Then he blows a hole in the train, escapes the train and lets the train crash with Ross on board during which time we can reasonably assume Ross died. You have the floor. And he, you know, he, he calls attention to that with, I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you. And I think the reason I'm okay with this is because it's a callback within the movie to where he made the long-term mistake of saving Liam Neeson. And there's a, there's an idea of he's given this man a second chance. Don't need to give him a third chance. Right. So to me, it's, it's, it, it, it is okay with me. Okay. Well, though, if he had, though, if he'd had a gun and shot him, that would not have been okay with me. No, no. I mean, even I've got my (laughs) limits here, but you know, the, I get, look, thing is, If ever and, and there was a time, oh, so, I mean, there's a point at which would we have asked Jason Bourne that question? <laughs> no. <laughs> would we have asked James Bond that question? Certainly not. It's because he's wearing a costume, and the source material is a comic book, is the only reason this comes up at all, ever. Well, the uh, which is okay, you know, but I mean, that is some of the baggage you have in adapting a comic book versus adapting a spy novel. Right. Or adapting a thriller novel. If ever there was a time that somebody proved themselves to be such a malevolent threat that they truly are now too dangerous to be left alive, this is one of them, you know. And I can't, on the one hand, I can't really shake this notion that Nolan wanted to kind of have his cake and eat it too, yeah. where he gets, like, just on a subconscious level, okay? Audiences want to see not just the villain pay the price for his sins. They want to see him pay the ultimate price. Mm-hmm. And as you say, that introduces moral complications whenever you introduce all of these, for lack of a better term, pro-life characters into big screen cinema. The storytelling and dramatic requirements inherent to a comic kind of necessitate the possibility that the Joker could come back next month for you know for more trouble and so you can't at best you have to leave his fate ambiguous at worst you have to show him in cuffs getting carried off to arkham asylum and that works really well in comics it's harder to accomplish in in cinema for the reasons i've just mentioned and so that's fine but this idea that Batman is effectively abandoning somebody to their fate. And I think a kind of a grisly fate. I mean, 
on the one hand, you know, my personal opinion is that the worst punishment anybody in the world deserves, I don't care who they are or what they've done, the worst that anybody deserves is one bullet to the head. You know, it's quick, it's easy, it's painless, it's over. And odds are that person isn't going to suffer very much, if at all. Whereas plummeting to their death in a train where they are going to die in this fiery orgy of carnage and destruction, I mean, that seems, I'm not trying to sound like a bleeding heart or anything, but that seems a bit cruel and unusual to me. And on the one hand, I mean, I, I can't rationally argue that it's somehow worse than what the guy deserves, considering what he was willing to do to the city and all of these, let's face it, innocent people on the one hand. On the other hand, you cannot show Batman breaking this guy's neck and then smiling and vanishing off into the night. That cannot fucking happen. So under the circumstances, I believe Nolan... He made the best choice he could have under the circumstances. Whether or not that was the right decision, well, who the hell knows? But that was, nevertheless, that was... I think, yeah, yeah, but uh, the context in which that choice is made makes it reasonable, makes it understandable. You, You can buy it. Well, and, you know, I think I'll... I think part of the reason that people are kind of friendly to Batman taking this course of action, this may sound cheap, it may sound inappropriate, but I just just hear me out. I think a lot of it has to do with the delivery. And my my God's honest opinion is if any other actor except Christian Bale had given this line, I don't think as many people would have bought into it. I mean, Christian Bale, we can get more into his performances in the other movies when we start talking about the other movies in future episodes, but at least in this movie, he's very invested in this character. He cares about this character, and he wants it to be the best it can be. And specifically the line reading that he gave in that scene, Uh I wouldn't be surprised. I, I could be wrong. But I wouldn't be surprised if he spent hours and hours the night before staring at himself in the mirror trying to find the perfect delivery for it. There's no malice. We have examples of Christian Bale putting – physically putting his body through things. Oh, yeah. In this movie. Yeah, and and others that would make perfect sense that he focused on the performance aspect just as much. Yeah. I mean there's a a reason he's – been nominated for some Oscars and won one, and and he's a very talented, very skilled actor, and and as he's a very committed, certainly yeah. in the in the in this uh, in this film. Yeah, and the I think he realized that this is one of the pivotal lines of the movie. Yeah, and so there's no. It's not triumphalist exactly the way he the way he delivers the line. There's no smugness to it on the one hand, but he's brimming with confidence and there's a I don't like a moral certainty behind what he's doing that's implied in this line and his delivery of it. He's confident. Yeah. Not not cocky, not arrogant, like he said, not snide. 
and he's, he, not, he's, he's confident that he's correct, that yeah. he's morally correct. And, you know, you can deliver this line in a sort of mournful type of way that this is a defeat for him, too. And that changes the context of it. Or if it's a little too triumphalist, now he's just an asshole. Right. And, and, and at the very least, accessory to murder, if not murder. There's a fine line. And he fucking found it. And, you know, I mean, I don't have the same eye for acting that a lot of other people do. And that's just because I'm just more of a writing kind of guy. So sorry. But just to read this line on the page, you know, it almost sounds like he's sticking sticking out the middle finger as he's doing all of it. Right. And that's not the delivery in the movie. And I truly believe that at least Batman fans would have mutinied instead of just mm. some of them uh, doing a mutiny. <laughs> all of them might have might have mutinied if he hadn't found the perfect balance in victory, but not kind of cocky douchebaggery. Right. right. So it's just really well done. I dig it. So, and then from there we basically get sort of falling action, you know, Bruce and Rachel, they kiss and then decide they can't kiss anymore. And then Batman has this sort of rooftop meeting with commissioner Gordon, where the bat signal is unveiled and Gordon, I don't know if it would be fair to say that he chastises Batman exactly, but he does kind of put him on notice a little bit, you know, what you're doing is going to have blowback. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to do stuff like this for free. There's always going to be a, a, a temptation by the criminal underworld to match or exceed the methods of law and order. And right now, you have taken the game to a completely different level. Right. And yeah. that's sort of... There will be a consequence. And I, if that is not the perfect way of setting up the next two movies, I don't know what is. But at least in the here and now, the personification of all of that is Gordon giving a piece of police evidence to Batman that basically says this guy is using this as his calling card. Batman turns the card over. And of course, it's a Joker playing card. Now, (laughs) that's pretty much the end of the movie. And I guess as far as setting up a sequel is concerned... How did you react? Like, what were your thoughts there? You know, I can't remember my thoughts at the time. Um, because, but, you know, but, you know, looking back, obviously, we see this as part of a three movie cycle mm-hmm. with, with arguably the peak being the next movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly in terms of hype, in terms of box office. Oh, yeah. And so it's, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's it's hard to recall what I thought at the time, uh, but it just it just it it lays the groundwork for what's coming next. And conceptually, I do like the idea of villain escalation. That makes sense to me. I I like the idea of costumed villains being a response to costumed heroes and not the other way around. Yes. That's just that's just how I like my comics. I don't need them to be that way, or it's not my comic. Um, but that's, that's the preferred order uh, for me. Well, and I, know, I, I, I like the idea that there are pre Batman villains 
which are basically the mob and corrupt cops and the system, or something big and overarching like a Illuminati-style worldwide conspiracy of the the League of whatever they are, um, and then post-Batman style of villains personified probably best by the Joker. Right. Well, and again, you know whether whether the details of the Dark Knight were in Nolan's mind or not. But the idea of, I think, the Joker does symbolize that post-Batman style of costume villains for, you know, um, among Batman's rogues. Right. Well, the this whole idea of supervillain escalation is something that's been, I would say, implicit, but at times even explicit in comics. I mean, there's always, like specifically Batman comics, I remember reading comics where, you know, characters were making the argument that, you know what, Batman attracts these people to the city. I mean, they're not coming out of the woodwork organically. They're being enticed out into the open. And oddly enough, the it's never actually specifically said whether or not that's not to get too far ahead, but that's it's never actually said if Batman was in fact the Joker's inspiration. But the timing sure is suspicious, put it that way. Right. And so the watching this in theaters for the first time, you know, somebody kind of gave me a tip off that said the movie ends kind of on a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, how is something kind of a cliffhanger? Well, having seen the movie now several times, yeah, the movie ends kind of on a cliffhanger. Right. And there was... I'm I'm not going to lie. I mean, I I could feel it in my chest. You know, my pulse kind of quickened when I saw that, you know, because I thought, oh, shit. You know, I, uh, here I was. I was kind of invested in the story as it had unfolded before me. And I think it's kind of human nature whenever you watch these movies. You're not necessarily thinking about sequels, except maybe as the abstract. Sure. You know, oh, well, you know, we may see a better chase, a car chase in – in whatever movie comes next, you know, Batman begins too, but you know, this is a good starting point. But you're not really thinking about the nuts and bolts of what could be in that movie, not necessarily. And then there comes this moment when Batman flips the card over and you see that it's a Joker card, you know exactly what that means. And, and and as, as we've said, you know, Nolan was trying to turning away from the series of movies that had come before and to, you know, by choosing villains for this, for begins that were not featured villains mm-hmm. in the, the prior set of movies, um, you know, and then, and, and then saying, but next time you'll get my take on the big guy. Yeah. Because the Joker is, is certainly has become, uh, in the last 30 years, the number one Batman villain by far. Hmm. Yeah, I tend to. I, 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 th- I think in, in in public perception. Right. Well, and that was, I thought, a very clever and effective way of ending the movie. That if you wanted the the villain in the next movie to be the Joker. You could do that, or if you wanted to go, but it doesn't necessarily lock you into it. Yeah, at least whenever you're 
writing and shooting this stuff. Now, audience reaction, I think, kind of painted Chris Nolan into a corner, whether he wanted to or not. Pretty much he had to use the Joker in the next movie simply because people were very interested, I think, to see what was coming. And I think that's a mark of how critically successful this movie was. Like the like the commercial success maybe wasn't everything it might have been. But then Nolan was facing uh, a lot of handicaps there. But yes, yes. the critical reception, and I speak here not of critics. No, no I understand. But, yeah. Was such that people were very interested now in Batman for the first time at this point and, and, in and like 10 years. Yeah, and, and specifically what this what what this team of Nolan and Bale, what they would do next. Yeah. I and, think that, that anticipation that, that anticipation would have I think would have been there, but without flipping that card over. I I, I do think that ramped it up. Yeah. Def, definitely. And just overall like of all of the movies, like the three that Nolan did, this is the one that I think holds up the best in a weird kind of way, believe no, it or not, because I think that's, that's reasonable because this is going to sound mean and I don't mean it to, but all of the actors that are in this movie, this is the most invested in these roles that they would ever be. The, the director, he, he, I don't think he was wide eyed necessarily, but he was still hungry, wanted yes. to prove himself and I think as much as anything, maybe wanted to prove to himself that, you know what, I can make a Hollywood movie. I can make a blockbuster movie, something that he'd never really done before. I mean, Memento was successful. It was a great film. But it was not a big budget. No. And this is one of those – this is a kind of an also-ran studio release. This is not a tentpole, you know? Right. Right. And – Nolan had proven that he's a very talented, and I think even today, one of the most interesting filmmakers around. Mm -hmm. But none of that was necessarily assumed of him at the time. And And, and this is where he gets into the rhythm of one for the studio, one for me. And one for the studio, one for me. And I I think that shows, to some extent, certainly by the third one, it shows that he's doing this to get to the next project that he wants to do yeah and i you know the this movie i think the lasting legacy of it is going to be that you can reinvent batman in fact i say it that this will be it 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 already is the legacy the legacy of this movie is that you can reinvent batman number one and number two you can do it in a way that wide audiences will appreciate and accept, cherish even. Right. And in 1999, in 2000, in 2001, who among us would have ever made that bet? Right. Nobody. Or few of us. But now it's almost conventional wisdom, you know? And it's because of this movie that the idea of rebooting a superhero when the old, when the old version peters out well it's okay to start over if you have something worthwhile to say there are ways that it can blow up in your face which from a commercial standpoint i kind of have to point the finger at the amazing spider-man there yeah, but right fair you can do it in a way that's are that's creatively successful and commercially viable if you 
if you take the time to do the job right <clears throat> and you hire the talent who can do the job. You know, I, th- I think it shows that these characters, these, these, these big comic book characters mm-hmm. are integrated enough into not just pop culture, but into culture mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that you get a, you, you get some buy-in for re restarting for retrying. That's like, that's okay. I mean, it happens with plenty of other, again, it's, it's baked into James Bond. It's baked into Dr. Who, uh, you know, that we can reboot, do a, a new team, new actors, you know, they're, how many different versions of Sherlock Holmes are active currently? Well, let's in, talk about in, that in, 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 in film and TV, and, and, and that's okay. I think I, I think when a character gets to that level, you know, uh, the public will allow, even embrace various versions of that character, sometimes contradictory, mm. you know, that are sort sort of being produced almost simultaneously. Well, this is. This question, it's going to require a little bit of conjecture on your part. It's unknown, and I would say unknowable. But actually, hold on. Which came first? That just means I can't be wrong. (laughs) Let's see. Actually, I I want to double check on something real quick before I – Okay. Casino Royale came out in 2006, right? This is the big reboot of James Bond – wherein Daniel Craig was brought into the role. So would, would would Casino Royale exist without Batman Begins? You know, you wonder, I mean, logistically it was probably in production, but would it have gotten into, you know, just the, the time frame I'm thinking, but certainly probably the acceptance, the popularity, mm-hmm. or at least the studio's confidence that it would, you know, uh, that, that it would work probably grew. Yeah, and then they may have poured some more money into it, poured some more promotion into it. Um, that's that's a, that that that's an and that is an interesting question. Well, it just kind of makes me In think. In terms of yeah, yeah, that sort of that, that rebooting it. Yeah, and and what I've always assumed, and I'm I'm no expert on Casino Royale, but I always thought that it really is a coincidence of timing that they came out at the same time. Mm-hmm. But I've all but I always thought that if. Casino Royale had come first, we would have gotten Batman Begins or something like it anyway. It's just kind of strange to think that looking back at it, Batman Begins came first, you know? And, uh, you know, I think it actually, you know, in the end worked out rather nicely. But it did show, it, it had to have given, now of course, I who who handles James Bond as an MGM or whoever it is, that... It had to give him at least that extra little bit of confidence that, you know what, Batman can do this, we can do it too. Right, right. So, who knows. But uh, do you have any uh, any parting shots with Batman Begins, anything that we haven't specifically I, talked about? I do, have to, I do have to go back and talk about one scene towards the end of the movie. Sure. That, that we didn't talk about just because it's not really a, a Batman in particular scene, mm-hmm. but as an actual tenured – business professor i do have to talk about the scene towards the end where bruce uh takes over the company boots out the ceo and installs lucius uh in place yes and first of all it's a great scene Mm -hmm. it's it is highly inaccurate 
<laughs> but it, it is a great scene because the problem is that would that, never happen. Uh, <laughs> it, it 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 could never happen because there's a rule that says once one person directly or indirectly owns five percent of a public company, mm-hmm. they have to disclose that to the SEC. So and then everyone knows. So a secret takeover, very common in fiction, but they don't work in real life. And is this for publicly traded companies? For publicly, or all? Traded, for publicly traded companies, ah. which they had become during the movie. Okay. So and 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 also logistically, it would take a little more time for the board to approve firing and hiring a new CEO, even if there were a majority shareholder. Mm-hmm. There still are policies and procedures. That being said, I love the scene. <laughs> it just is friggin' impossible. And it's 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 actually one of the better versions of this type of scene. Um, it is it is realistic, but not accurate. Ah, <laughs> you know. All right. Well, the, so I, uh... I just could not my my uh, professional pride would not let me let that scene go by. <laughs> okay. Well, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is, as far as, you know, just, and this is more just aesthetics and preference. So, you know, there's no right answer here. The Batman outfit that is used in this movie, like, I just simply because of the fact that it's a completely visual thing, how do you like this in general, but also as compared to that which had come before? I think this is one of the differences that you get between movie and comic book, just to answer that part of the question first, Mm -hmm. in that if you're talking about a static image on a page, Mm -hmm. a series of static images, a black-on-black costume is is not workable. No. You need some light gray, some blue, a nice orange oval on the chest. You need something. But the movie's not a static image. So you don't need the pop of culture because you have the cape swirling, you have the soundtrack, you have the foley. You know, you you don't need color because you have the other senses engaged. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I liked I actually I, I liked the logistics of the cape as well. Um, but it 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 worked for me. It's certainly also the black on black and you know, laying in this sort of ninja, ninja training that he had done. Yep. You know, it fit sort of. You know, thematically, but it it fit in terms of the arc of the character. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it 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 worked in that sense. Uh, it would be a pretty bad comic book um, uh, costume because I guess you get the the belt has a little bit of color in it, right? You know, but uh, you know, uh, but the the black on black theme, just that aspect of the costume, worked pretty well for me. All right. Well, it's kind of funny that you mentioned the still images thing because I have never seen a photograph of this suit that looks good at all. Right. Sure. But it's weird how, as you say, when you watch the film itself, that's sort of a non-issue. It's it, for some reason it's you buy it in film in a way that you don't in photography. It's just strange. Yeah, but they're, they're, they're different media. Yeah. So, I don't know. And, you know, speaking of that, and this is kind of a tangent, but since you mention it, I've wondered more than once if that's why I've never read a comic book adaptation of a movie that I really like. And that, that, yeah. 
it's just it's strange you know because there's something about the movie's visuals that just don't transition back to comics and something about comic visuals that oddly enough don't really transition to movies in the majority of cases i mean sometimes you can get kind of easy and obvious costumes like spider-man or deadpool or something like that and that i think you can that's pretty workable but for some reason the iconic characters superman batman even you could say green lantern those costumes as they are in comics just need something you know especially batman batman definitely needs something and i've i've seen very few movie outfits that didn't work in the movie that they were they were used in but you know it's kind of funny the 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 Batman outfit that everybody agrees is a little bit cheesy is the only one that's actually been truly comics accurate, and that was Adam West. Right. So it's just interesting, isn't it? So. I mean, but it, it, it does, it just hammers home the point that these are two different things. And and certainly, you know, things like the, the, the lighting, the sound, the music, all of those things can hide a multitude of sins or can you know certainly uh, they can uh, move your emotions one direction or the other yes and those are things that you don't get in 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 comics i think to, to some extent comics certainly have advantages you know, you know you've got the uh, basically uh, unlimited budget yes right for special effects you can do anything you want to in a comic book can send your character into the past, the future, outer space, underwater. All, all, all on the same page if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't cost extra. <laughs> and it doesn't cost a bit. Uh, you know, so the, the limitations are different, the, the media are different. That's, I do get, this might be the 17th time I've said this, they're different media. And I think sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we literally want our comic books to come to life on the screen. And I think that worked okay in Watchmen, but I certainly wouldn't want every movie to be just literally the comic book on the screen. Yeah, well, and the thing is, I mean, if it comes to that, then you start getting into a separate argument of which comic is it that's going to end up See, on well, the screen. Well, there you and, go. And there you go. Right there, you've you, you've bifurcated the audience just on that. So, all right. Well, do you have any other uh, any other comments? Anything I haven't asked you about specifically? Uh, no, no. I thought this was uh, solid stuff. I thought it was a nice reboot. Uh, you know, good origin story. Probably of the three of these movies, it, it might be the most comic booky mm-hmm. mm. uh, of the three. No doubt. Uh, I I do like uh, Dark Knight a, a lot as well. Maybe we talk about that at some time. That that's almost more a crime drama. Yes, it is. is. Then it is a comic book movie. I mean, this really is a hero origin story, and and to some extent, origin stories. I I think there's a reason origin stories are popular. So I think they're sort of easy to do, and we like them. <laughs> and you know, I think it, it's easy for audiences to wrap their mind around mm-hmm. why a character is doing these in, in extreme, incredible, dangerous things whenever you have the benefit of hearing their side of the story when that's absent it's I think 
I think the best example is always going to be Superman Returns. You know, audiences did not have a context for that character. People can say whatever they want about Superman the movie, but I'm sorry. At the time that movie came out, no, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but very few people, relatively, under the age of 30 or 35 had seen Superman the movie and had a, like a working knowledge of it, such that they understood where Superman and Superman Returns was coming from, you know? So, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things that, you know, the, when you give the audience the anchor, as Chris Nolan did with Batman or as John Favreau did with Iron Man, yes, they'll follow you wherever you go, but they need to have that as their foundation. And this is a good foundation. So exactly. that I think, well, let me rephrase that. It's a good foundation for what Nolan set out to do. Yes. This isn't exactly my ideal Batman film. I can somewhat enjoy it now, but my personal take on Batman, honestly, it's a little bit of a of a toss-up now between Tim Burton and Zack Snyder, but uh, <laughs> maybe now's not the time to get into that. So, either way, I just want to thank you very much for joining in because, like I say, I didn't want this to turn into screaming and ranting and temper tantrums. I wanted this to be a mature and reasoned discussion, and I thank you very much for, for bringing that to this episode, and I can't wait to have you back to talk about the other two. Well, you're welcome. I thank you for the invitation. <laughs> happy to uh, happy to do it so I think that's pretty much it for me this week I'll talk to you all next week bye everybody and we are out that was fun think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I kick ass for the Lord! Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history. Because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out dorknesstolight.blogspot.com for our more regular content. Or dorknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Dorkness to Light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. 
Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost a hundred bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarter Bin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.